0: With the Looking Glass Forum, and we are here to penetrate the shrouded veil, to expose the vile works of darkness, and to bring to light the occult power structure of the New World Order, and of the burgeoning throne of the Antichrist. Welcome back. So this week we have kind of a, an undertaking, kind of a heavy lift of a an episode this week, because we have to get into just this massive topic of the... The origins of the mystery religions and the um, what, what ends up culminating biblically in the scriptures as mystery Babylon, and to understand the the nature of this particular system of religio cultic human development and civilization, that really good takes us back to the Ur of the Kalides, back to Mesopotamia, about you know back to the the start of human civilization, as it, as it were. And so we have to get into the the concept of of the Mithraic cult and Pater Paternoster Pater Noster is the highest level of initiation within the Mithraic cult and it represented the father priest. So Pater Paternoster means it means a father priest. And so this idea of uh, of calling priests father in the Roman cult in the Vatican there, that the whole tradition of calling priests father comes from this earlier incarnation of astro theology in the Mithraic cults. And in order to really understand that better we have to go back in time before the Roman period to time of the Greeks and Pythagoras. So this is a really huge undertaking. We're gonna get into in order to, to lay the groundwork for an understanding about the ley lines, the great circle ley lines. That really interconnect north america and washington dc and and some people know about these secret geometric and admiralty lines that are used for for na- circumnavigating the globe so this is important information to really just kind of establish in your minds and understand the the great circle meridians of uh, the power lines that so these occultists have been building on for centuries. So in order to get to this huge topic, I mean, there's so much to go into, and I just I want to get it out on the record and just get to some of the deeper concepts and deeper occult histories that people often are going to pass over or not fully comprehend or not be able to have the wherewithal to put on a podcast. And so we see we've been driving some of the other discussion here about the Vatican and about the the Catholic Church and about Protestantism, about you know the inner and outer magisterium of the Vatican, all that. With all that is. Built on what came before, which was the the pagan systems of mystery cults and the the mystery schools that came out of Egypt and Babylon, and ultimately that's what the pseudo Christianity of the Vatican is built on. That's why we have to be Protestants. We have to resist. We have to be Protestari, and Protestari means we're pro Testament. we 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 found the Testaments that Luther and and Calvin and the others discovered that the Catholic priests the Hadrian of the Vatican had been hiding the truth, right? So they want to introduce all this Mary worship, which was just an extension of Isis, uh, the the ceremonies of Isis worship, and Ishtar worship, and Samarimus worship that was coming out of Babylon, and the Phrygian Phrygian Society, which is also known as the Phoenician Society, in case you weren't aware. So let's read here. We have the libraryacropolis.org, and this is a fascinating article by Augustino Dominici, Mithras, and the Mithraic Mysteries. The Mithraic mysteries have their roots in the remote Vedic culture of India. Already in the Rig Veda, we find the god Mithra as regent and protector of a perfect cosmic order. Subsequently, in the Indo-European tradition of Iran, we find Mithra identified as the tutelary god of the pact or oath, slowly assuming a more prominent warrior status. The contact between Mithraism and the Western world occurred through the expansion of the Roman legions roughly from the 1st to the 4th century AD. Thanks to the influence from the Greco-Roman mystery tradition and the Neoplatonic teachings, authentic initiation path reserved for the chosen few was forged. Written sources about the Mithraic mysteries are very scarce, but iconographic findings abound. Obviously, this visual material can be interpreted as various levels at the theogonic level concerning the birth of the god, the cosmogonic level concerning the birth of the cosmos, And astrological, related to the birth of the soul through the planetary spheres. And initiatory, related to the inner transformation of the adept in the mysteries of Mithras. For the reasons of space, I will deal with the aspects concerning the latter approach only. Following the alchemic tradition, Mithras is born from the stone Petra genetics. We find him portrayed as a boy who, at birth, carries in one hand the torch and in the other hand a dagger. The god born from a stone refers to the idea of his body as the temple of the spirit. And from this temple, the light of the divine spark latent in him will manifest. The birth of the god happens next to a river, symbol of the currents of becoming, recalling the Buddhist concept of samsara, detachment from the material conditions, and the abandonment of earthly attachments is preparatory to a new beginning and a new life. The birth scene is complemented by representations of shepherds who pay homage to the god. The shepherds can be seen as symbols of spiritual presences, assisting in the initiatory rebirth of the adept, which nevertheless has to be a self-will act. The center scene found in all Mithraum is the Mithraeus fighting and killing the sacred bull. In this scene, Mithras, after climbing on the animal's back and having received the order from the sun, enters in a cave and kills the bull. The act of sacrifice, Mithra points his gaze away from the bull and towards the sun. From the tail and blood of the bull, ears of corn are born to symbolize the new life arising from death. The flesh of the killed animal is then consumed by Mithras and the sun in a ritual banquet. In the act of killing, Mithras' face shows an expression of pain and suffering, as commented by Porphyr In in the scene, the god secretly mourns the birth of life in order for the spiritual life to be born, the sacrifice of the bull, the symbol of the lunar self, or personality, or Taurus, the bull, which is, these are all different uh, cosmological signs as far as the sun, the moon, and the constellation for the bull, Taurus. Uh, The sacrifice of the bull is unavoidable. For those who have fully committed themselves to the call of the sun, one's higher self, there is only one choice to kill out of the desire for mundane life in order to stay Really alive in the life of the spirit, for those who have embarked on the initiatory journey, the act of dying to oneself of supreme enunciation of inner transformation is a painful but necessary act. To ride and tame the bull symbolizes the ability to repolarize one's lower nature, while the act of killing the bull coincides with the release of the solar force within the adept. As a reminder that this new life is a delicate state of balance, we also see in the scene a snake, a dog, and a scorpion threatening this solar release. These animals are the chaotic forces of the adept's inferior nature, which are in a state of latency, but always ready to regain the upper hand. The seven initiations into the mysteries of Mithras. So this is kind of what we're getting into, getting into these seven. And really, Mithras, the religion, is going to be a culmination of all the previous arcane and initiatory secret knowledge. The Gnostic systems that came before Mithras were all accumulated in this one system of syncretism, of religious unity and universalism. Mithraic traditions are supposed to be an interworking of all occult sciences to get into one to reveal the, the ultimate truth. So that's what the Mithraic, that's what the, the, the legions and the soldiers of Rome were participating in and joining in in great popularity uh, at the time of Christ and, and from thereafter. Seven Initiations of the Mysteries of Mithras As in many esoteric teachings, the number seven assumes an important role in the mysteries of Mithras. In the Mithraic Complex of Ostia, Italy, we find references to various Mithrae in the names like Seven Spheres, Seven Gates, and Seven Rungs. This one is known as the Mithraeum of Philissimus. The seven initiatory grades were associated with the seven planets and their tutelary deities, seven medals, seven musical notes, and possibly seven colors, all these secret correspondences with Pythagorean, Platonic, and Orphic origins were accumulated and taught in the Mithraic Mysteries. So there we go. This is what we were really reading for. We'll read on just a little bit more. But the the purpose of this reading was to, to show that the amalgamation of Pythagorean, Platonic, and Orphic teachings and initiations were universalized and brought together and systematized into one initiation under the Mithraic Mysteries, which is coming later in the Roman period. The first figure that we see in the entrance can be interpreted as a circle of a wheel. The circular figure could allude to the doctrine of the cycle of rebirth or transmigration of the soul as taught in the Mithraic Mysteries. Being located at the beginning of the initiatory path, this symbol reminds us of the unique opportunity that is given to the neophyte to escape from the wheel of samsara, the wheel of time and destiny, and ultimately this is the goal found at the end of each initiatory journey. The second figure found at the entrance is that of a vase or a cratur, a symbol that of the primordial matrix in which the germ or the karmic seeds of all life forms have been deposited. Finally, still at the entrance, we find a burning altar, a clear reference to the sacredness of the fire. Let's not forget the Persian roots of the Mithraic cult, a concrete manifestation of the spiritual presence. And of course, one of the final iterations that comes before the Mithraic traditions is that of the Persian. So we're talking about Ahura Mazda and the Zoroastrian traditions which are totally replicated and, and totally animated inside the mithraic cult now they're going to go through the entire article go through the seven stages of initiation and read all the symbols and all the interesting facts about that and you can check it out but our interest in this article concerning the phrygian cap right the, the special santa claus cap that cultists wear which was the phoenician which goes way back to the time of Babylon and Assyria. But we're going to drop down here to the seventh and final level of Mithraic initiation. And number seven is Pater Noster, Pater Father. Symbols include the Mithraic Phrygian cap, the sickle, the scepter, the sacrificial bowl, and the symbolic god of the Pater Noster initiation level number seven is Saturn. So this is what we need to understand about the Saturn priesthood and about the, the nature of the Mithraic traditions. And we'll just read this. Uh, pater we find frescoes where the paters, or the priests, are depicted seated on a throne holding the scepter, symbol of magical and spiritual power, and a parchment, the symbol of knowledge. In the Roman tradition, the god Saturn, who presides over the Golden Age, is also the origin of the pater, or the priest, or the divine genealogy. The sickle here symbolizes the reaping of time itself, covering thus the dimensions of the eternal, which is achieved by the highest initiates. Okay, So this is the highest level initiation, the father-priest level. This is what you're going to see the entire Roman religious cult of the Vatican built on. And the most fascinating part, the point that really ties this whole spiritual iniquity in, and darkness in with the, the staff of Caduceus, is also the same thing as the staff of Hermes, and we were talking about, as we're getting ready to explain to you the tradition of Hermes Trismegistus, and Hermes Trismegistus has a central role to play in the occult system. It's something you probably never heard of. It's, it's irrelevant in, in the background noise of your life, but of course, for thousands of years, this concept of the the spiritual god who would send communications from Mount Olympus down to the humans and would communicate with the the, the priests. So this God who was interacting with the priests was called Caduceus, would we, we, carry the staff of Caduceus and would be known as Hermes. So Hermes was the God of communication. He had the, the speed and, and, and this is something, that, a theme that we're going to build out in this particular episode. And in order to tie in the understanding of the consummation of the soul by the spiritual powers, we have to go down here to look here at finally at the very end of the article, it discusses what is most important in this whole spiritual conception is the the God, the man beast. Okay, the man beast is going to be coming out of the depths of the the spiritual chaos and is gonna be the emerger of the serpent and the man, and he has a lion's head to show that he's no longer a man, he carries two keys. A fitting and final symbol associated with the seventh degree is that of the mysterious Leonticephalus. And the the Leonticephalus, the lion-headed body of the adept, is intertwined seven times by the snake. And he has four wings on his back, mastery over the four directions of space, and he holds the keys of life and death and a scepter. So this final amalgamation, the final initiation of the, the adept to become the beast man, to become seven times Wrapped with the serpent is ultimately the the demon possession that we will see come about by the Antichrist. Okay, so this seventh level of initiation, the Paternos, sort of leads to what is understood in the occult world to be the the man-beast of the serpent, or we understand in the Bible to be the Antichrist of the serpent. And of course, he has the two keys, and those are the two keys of the hinge. And this these two keys are where we get the two keys on the Vatican flag. They're not the keys of Peter to open uh, and bind and and loose and so forth, which are seized upon by the perverters of the scripture there in the Vatican, those who are changing what the meaning of the scripture is. These two keys come from the Roman god who is the two-faced one, Janus, the god of the the past and the future, and the goddess uh, Sibyl. And the goddess Sibyl had the keys of the hinge, and they could open and close the gates of heaven. So those were the the keys. the, uh, The keys of the papacy have now are understood to be the keys of spiritual and temporal power, and not of the spiritual keys of the church, which are totally separate, or totally something totally different. You have to understand the difference between Simon Magus and Simon the Apostle. So, the tradition of the Bible is built on the words of the Messiah and his relationship to Simon Peter. That's how we get the Gospels. But the interloper, Simon Magus, the magician who tried to buy the spiritual gifts for money and was cursed by Simon Peter, he is the Simon or the little rock, the little Petra that Jesus said that would not, the the, the gates of hell would would uh, not withstand against the, the, the gospel teaching. So, you can understand there's a perversion in the message. They like to say that the Vatican Church, the Vatican Roman Temple, is built on the Apostle Peter. But, of course, we understand that they built their magical Mithraic tradition on Simon Magus. who's a totally separate person. So, as we're going forward here... We have just another quick article. I just wanted to, like cram it in the beginning of our episode here, so you have it. We have these links in the show notes, and you have these this, these episodes as a resource for you to go back and study, look at the information, look at the videos, and go through. And you can you can begin to see that we're you know showing you something that's for the adepts. It's for the it's for the secret initiates. It's something for those who are learned masters of this arcane knowledge. And so this we're trying to get you to see that there's something else going on in the background here. So let's show you here this simple Encyclopedia Britannica listing for Pythagoreanism. Okay, So we'll add this also, Pythagoreanism. The earliest known systematic cult based on the rule of numbers was that of the Pythagoreans. So this is a cult, a system of a cult, sacred geometry, a system of a cult, religion. It's all based on numbers. Pythagoras was a Greek who thrived in the 6th century B.C., Little is known of his life, and in fact, he may be a a composite figure to whom the discoveries of many different people have been attributed by his followers. It is not even known whether the Pythagorean theorem in geometry was actually discovered by him. The Pythagoreans invest with the mysteries, since all other numbers can be created from one by adding enough copies of it. For example, three of the male, they come together, in two plus three equals five as marriage. All even numbers were female and all odd numbers were male. The number four represented justice. The most perfect number was 10 because 10 equals 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4. This number symbolizes unity arising from multiplicity. Moreover, it was related to space. A single point corresponds to one, a line to number two. Because a line has two extremities, a triangle to three, and a, a space, a square space for uh, number four. Thus, ten also symbolized all possible spaces. The Pythagoreans recognized the existence of nine heavenly bodies. So this is how we're going to trace the origins back to the Mithraic cult, right? The Pythagoreans recognized the existence of nine heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the so-called central fire. So important was number 10 in their view of cosmology that they believed there was a 10th body, a counter-earth, perpetually hidden from us by the sun. Some Pythagorean speculations were mathematical, represented numbers by arrangements of dots. And the Pythagoreans were especially fascinated by the presence of the numbers in the natural world because their most spectacular discovery was that musical harmony is related to simple whole-number ratios. So you can see that they were creating a cosmological world unified field theory, if you want, based on this idea of numerical ratios that tied all things together, including light spectrum, music spectrum, and so on. A string such as on a violin produces a note with particular pitch. A string one half as long produces an extremely harmonious note to the first, now called an octave. So we're going to go down through here. We could read this whole fascinating article, but just for the purpose of time, we want to go down here to their, their symbolic sacred attribution of numbers. For instance, the number five was associated with the Babylonian goddess Ishtar and the Roman parallel goddess, which is the same thing, Venus. So we understand the pentagram is symbolic of the goddess worship of Venus and Ishtar. So let's just go up here. This is the the central... Fulcrum of all occult knowledge goes back to this Pythagorean tradition here, and we have to see how central seven, number seven, is to their sacred uh, sorcery here. And we want to just connect up this six hundred years of occult tradition together. So we're looking at uh, number seven. The sum of spiritual three and the material four is seven. In medieval education, students pursued the trivium—grammar, rhetoric, and logic—and the quadrivium—music. Geometry and astronomy. So this is the beginning. A total of seven subjects collectively known as the liberal arts. Pythagorean's interest in mathematical patterns and music is seven. A privileged role, for there are seven distinct notes in the musical scale, corresponding roughly to the white notes on a piano. Counting from one, the eighth note up the scale is exceedingly harmonious octave, which is how the the name arose. The number seven is often considered lucky. It has a definite mystique, perhaps because it is a prime number. That is, it cannot be obtained by multiplying two smaller numbers together. There are seven days of the week named after various ancient gods and planets, Sunday, Moon Day, Tuesday, Wooden's Day, Thursday, Day, Frigia's Day, and Saturn Day. Two was a Norse god of war, parallel to Mars in role, but parallel to Zeus in etymology. And Phrygia was the old English version of Freya, the wife of Odin or Odin. Shakespeare wrote, of the seven ages of man, an idea that goes back much earlier. In China, seven determines the stages of female life. A girl gets her milk teeth at seven months, loses them at seven years, reaches puberty at two plus seven at 14 years, and reaches menopause at seven times seven, forty-nine. 49 The phases of the moon last approximately seven days, with four times seven, 28 days in the month, and also in a female menstrual period. Many cultures recognize seven planets, Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and and of course that's through the Mithraic tradition also. In the sense of wandering bodies, unlike the fixed stars, which retain the same relative position in the night sky, the seven candles of the Jewish menorah that burned in the tabernacle symbolize the creation, and according to the English scholar Robert Graves, may be connected to the seven planets of antiquity. In ancient Egypt, there were seven paths to heaven, seven heavenly cows. Osiris led his father through seven halls of the underworld. The seven deadly sins are known in the Christian tradition of Rome. The number seven was a fundamental number of the Rosicrucians, who used it in an organizational basis for their doctrinal text, Kamiska Hose Christiana Rosicruz, 1458, an alchemical wedding of the Christian Rosy Cross. The number seven also central to the cult of Mithra, which believed the soul rose to the paradise through seven planetary spheres. The Christian idea of seven layers of purgatory may be related. And I would add here that the Roman Catholic heretical Christian idea of seven layers of purgatory may be related. So here we have to add, as we end this, you can continue on in your reading to learn more about this, this article, but the idea of purgatory is wholly Mithraic. The idea of having to transcend through seven layers of hell in order to to burn off your your you know extra sins and to to rise to heaven is completely pagan, and they teach this in church. You guys out there who think that you're intellectuals and you're really smart guys, real scholars. You really, you really read the church fathers. You, you really know so much information. And you have to understand that if you knew anything at all about any, any kind of a doctrine or information, you understand that purgatory was based on Hades, which was a Greek mythological superstition, and now informs us many centuries later, and the popes are going to create this idea out of whole cloth, this total lie of this idea of purgatory. So we understand when we read the scriptures, and when we're absent from our body, and we leave here, we're present with Christ, and there's no purgatory. That's what the Bible says. So it's important for you guys to begin to use your magnanimous, enormous intellects to learn the truth. But we got that; those readings out of the way. We were able to easily connect up the Mithraic traditions of the Roman soldiers of the time of Christ, and we can tie it in with the initiation cult. You know the cult of numbers and geometry which began five, six, seven hundred years before and as just a final note here about the history of Pythagoras and understanding of, of what his background and what his connection was to bring about this powerful cult of geometry and cult of numbers and all this fascinating erudition where they had this explosion of mathematical knowledge where is it coming from? Well Pythagoras purportedly remained in Egypt for about 22 years but in 525 B.C. Egypt was conquered by a Persian king, Cambyses, and the Persian king deported most of the learned men of Egypt, Back to Babylon. So they weren't killed, but they were this is a tradition that you see the Assyrians and the Babylonians doing, which they wouldn't murder the learned, wise, educated men, but they would keep them to be a benefit and a positive help to the the new empire that was being forged. So the Persian king deported most of the learned men of Egypt back to Babylon, including Pythagoras. After about 12 years of Babylon, Pythagoras was allowed to leave and he returned to Greece. So he was able to combine the occult knowledge of Egypt, Persia, and Babylon, and take that back home with him. And so that's how we see the the rise of the Pythagorean Brotherhood. So hey, we're back again with our wonderful sponsor, Wendy's Boutique Limited. So you gotta go. It's our online outlet for everything the hottest new styles. Wendy'sLimited.com. We gotta get you guys over there. If you want to support us, please go and support Wendy at Wendy'sLimited.com. We have all the hottest new designer labels and all the new fashion trends and couture style and. Wendy's Luxury Boutique has everything you need, so check out wendyslimited.com, we need your uh, support to, uh, to share your love, so just go ahead and check out, again, we're here uh, breaking down some of the deep uh, conspiracies of the new world order, and when you're done doing that, you have to have some sexy snuggle time with your beautiful you know, lover, right, so you gotta have Wendy's Boutique. Wendy's Boutique Limited, Wendy'sLimited.com. So check it out. Wendy'sLimited.com has all kinds of different fashion styles and everything that you could uh, really. So yeah, I mean, we have to just have all the hottest new designer trends and labels available to you guys. So once again, Wendy'sLimited.com. Check it out. Wendy'sLimited.com. So, with the conclusion of our two or three uh, articles there, reading into the show notes and reading it into just the basis of that foundational information into our show notes here, just giving us a concept of where these the structure of ley lines and meridians and great circle geometry is coming from and how these civilizations and ancient Kingdoms and empires were built on these interconnecting ley lines across the surface of the earth. And it shows how early the Greeks realized that there was an orbit and that there was a process of the idea of geocentric model of the universe was going to fall away. And we're going to end up with this the heliocentric model, understanding that the great fire or the great solar star that was near us, that we were in orbit around it moving around it. And it appeared to us, because of relativity, that we were stationary. The star, the, the sun was moving around us in a circle. of course the the Greek geometers and mathematicians were able to figure this out and were able to get a pretty good idea using a shadow of a staff on the ground at different times of year they could get a good idea of what the actual circumference of the earth was and of course this information would be lost in the course of time we would end up many centuries later after the time of Christ in a period of the papal reign over Europe and of the dark ages and the dismal inquisitions and the bloodletting of burning heretics at the stake and all this was going to be a accompanied by the argument of the Pope that, of course, the idea of a heliocentric universe was impossible, and that, of course, the Pope, the Vatican, and the earth were at the center of the universe and did not move, uh, of course. you know the, Everything was still, but the, the sun moves, right? That was the argument of the papacy, the, the great flat earthers. That's what the Roman papacy was for many centuries. And it took, uh, you know, of course, Galileo was almost killed as a heretic, was almost persecuted by the Pope, Because he said that Copernicus was right, the Greeks were right, the Earth is round, the Earth is in an orbit around a center point, which is a fixed point, which is our star. And of course, this is going to be the great uh, scientific debate for many centuries. And of course, we have today the flat earthers who are trying to bring back this idea that we have some kind of like dome sky and some kind of flat uh, terrain and an Im- immovable place. So it's, it's we're moving backwards intellectually and we're moving back into this this remote dark ages conceptualization of the universe, which is just unfitting for us. So going forward, we have to recognize that there is the secret of the seafaring calculation of the sextant, right? The, the getting out your, your tool, looking at the stars and being able to place yourself on the surface of the earth and get an idea of what your general latitude and longitude are. And so this is the kind of information of the cartographer, of the circumnavigation of the globe, of the seafaring, law of the oceans, law of the seas, the process of steering yourself and navigating yourself across the oceans from one part of the sphere to the other. And this is the secret knowledge that has been In place for a long time, and we're going to take a look at how that applies practically and pragmatically used over time to be able to ship the shipping lanes, uh, to to be able to globally position satellites, and and all this information is based on the idea that we have ley lines of power that are interconnecting the past and the future. All right, so with that, we, we can't take up any more time. We have to introduce this one video, it's a visual aid. You'll probably have to go and check it out. You can listen to what he's discussing, but he's going to show a background image. This is the primer. This is one of the introduction pieces that we're going to use to begin to describe this larger three and four dimensional scope of the interconnecting trajectory across the surface of our planet. All right, so let's listen to this fascinating video.
1: Okay, here we go a great surf into two equal halves. We all know the equator, but you can actually draw an infinite number of great circles by um, extending a line between any two points on the globe, continue it around the backside, and you got your great circle. To define our imaginary line, we're gonna start with two really well-known ancient sites, the pyramids at Giza in Egypt, and the Nazca lines on the coast of Peru. Now we've got our imaginary line, we're gonna start back at the beginning and follow it around to see what else we run into. For 4,000 years, the pyramids at Giza were the tallest structure ever built by man. The adjacent sphinx is even older, probably serving as a gateway to the afterlife for some pre-Egyptian civilization, fitting then that today you can admire it from across the street while slowly killing yourself with a deep a deep dish meat lover's combo. Tracing the line in deep into the Sahara, we find the Oasis of Siwa, home to the Oracle of Amon-Ra, where in 32, 332 BC, Alexander the Great marched 500 miles in the wrong direction just to ask it if he was a god. The Oracle told him yes, that has nothing to do with the imaginary lines, it's just awesome. Heading back west, we follow Moses' path across Egypt, across Israel, and into Jordan, where we find the Nabatean city of Petra. Some people remember Petra as the birthplace of the Arabic language. Most of us remember it as where Indiana Jones found the Holy Grail. Crossing into Iraq, we find the ancient Sumerian city of Ur, which is one of the oldest human settlements in existence. Somewhere around 2,000 years ago, a guy named Abraham was born here, grew up here, and then wandered off with his super hot but infertile wife, Sarah, to start of the Hebrew tribe. Crossing into Iran, we find Persepolis, capital of the unbelievably vast Persian Empire until it was conquered by Alexander the Great. Still coasting on his godliness, Alexander got drunk and decided to burn the whole city down on a dare, which is why the Persians still know him today as Alexander the Douche. In Pakistan, we find the Harappan city of Mohenjo-daro, which uh, was one of the most advanced cities in the world for a thousand years until the Harappan people's spontaneously disappeared in an archeological puff of smoke. So smoke. No one knows why this happened because no one can read their handwriting. Uh, Crossing into Asia, we pass through ancient cities in India, Burma, Thailand and Cambodia, which brings the tally up to ten sites that pass directly through the line. Then we cross into the giant blue emptiness of the South Pacific, where the line crosses directly through a tiny little speck of land that we know as Easter Island, home of the Rapa Nui people who carved hundreds of giant stone heads and scattered them all over the place for no good reason. Okay, breath. Entering into South America, we find that Machu Picchu is a little a little bit too far north of the line but, if we head south on the famous Inca Trail, we soon run into the much larger city of Ollantaytambo, which is actually directly underneath the imaginary line. Finally, our last stop, the uh, massive line drawings of the Nazca people, which are so big they can only be seen from the air. They don't show up great in satellite images though, so I've overlaid a map on top of it, and you'll notice that the drawings are not oriented on the north-south polar axis, they're actually matching the imaginary line.
0: So with that, that's a useful visual cue. And you can watch that little bit. It's just the, the first yeah. show note that we entered in there. It just shows a, a fellow, and he's going to go through and and show us the intriguing and fascinating and uncanny and possible connection of all these ancient sites on one perfect great circle ley line okay so which is imagine the equator line which is the largest circumference of the circle and if you go north or south from the equator the the circles of circumference get smaller and smaller and smaller until you get to the poles so we're talking about the, the largest ring of circumference that great circle line is interconnecting all these fascinating and incredibly diverse and otherwise disconnected points of ancient civilizations on the globe into into one metric, into one geometric calculation of the Earth's surface in order to make sure that they could build these massive cities and these remote places around the world. So it goes back to the building of Atlantis. It takes us back to a time before Noah, before in biblical times when the world was united in a universe Universal world empire. It was built on these massive ley lines. So we'll introduce now the concept of the Satyr Square. And the Satyr Square is an a, a replication of Gnostic geometry and sacred knowledge and, and sorcery that was stemming from the Mithraic period out of the, the ancient past of antiquity, having to do with the, the rise of the mystery of Babylon and the mystery cults it's through having the knowledge being gathered together into a compendium by Pythagoras and extended into the pedagogy of Greek knowledge and religio-cultic learning, having made numbers sacred and in their connection with divinity. So we introduced this Seder Square, and again, you can review our information here to look more into it and it has to do with the the paternoster and the the symbolic replication of esoteric secret knowledge transmitted to initiates and and having to do with the ancient egyptian and babylonian sacred geometry and magical the numerical sorcery and you can see the the geometry expressed in the pyramids for instance as we're going forward we'll discuss more about that and you can see see that these great circle ley lines have connected many of the most important sites in the world it's obvious that the the nazca lines the easter island it becomes clear that the sites of these ancient megalithic civilization high up in the peruvian mountains all the way around the world intersecting through the geometry of the 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 pyramids in egypt and you can see that the illustration of revealed knowledge about the face of the Earth and how to calculate latitude and longitude properly over the correct circumference of the Earth's geometric calculations. So inasmuch as that, you can see that when these sites were built, they were sought after and built on these ancient ley lines. And so we're, we're showing you that, that the Atlantean civilization and the antediluvian world had the ability to circumnavigate the globe at the very least and probably had higher levels of technology and it becomes evident as we pursue the this suppressed knowledge regarding great circle ley lines of power okay so let's continue on here and it begins to do a little bit of a revelation about the connection between stonehenge near london through to washington dc and philadelphia and boston and new york being built on these large-scale geometric great circle meridian ley lines so that just completes the, the little review, and they're going to go into some more detail that, to reveal the large-scale circumference and navigational charting that went into finding the, the particular meridian ley lines that would interconnect the, you know, with the great circle geometry across the, the Atlantic Ocean. And you can see that, that they had that knowledge established, and they were carrying it on, and it's being transmitted from the distant past, because we can see that in the distant past, ancient pagan civilizations were it's the same thing with the Mayan and Aztec ruins, even though there were tribal populations in the area that lived and, and migrated and hunted and, and were hunter and gatherer tribes in the area it obviously begs the question how those temples were built, how the Nazca lines were etched, which are, are miles long etchings on the, the surface of a mountain mountainous plateau region and really can't see it unless you're high up in the air. So this is the kind of revelatory information we're trying to get out. And then we, as we kind of build the scope of this particular logic, so you can understand what we're looking at, we have to move forward with this particular look at Washington, D.C. So let's take a look now. We're going to add one more clip here. And I hope you'll take a few minutes and when you get a chance to check out the video. But it's going to show... And we have looked at this a little bit in the past, but it's going to show the occult construction and blueprinting of symbolism and sacred geometry into the crafting of the city and the the streets and the buildings themselves in Washington, D.C., and it shows the basis of the influence of the Freemasonic networks and their attempt to connect their current empire with the ancient empires of the past. The last thing I noticed
2: in Washington, D.C. propelled me on a virtual journey around the world. Remember the pair of interlocking triangles surrounding the White House? It struck me that the horseshoe-shaped lawn in the White House backyard looked a lot like the bluestone ring at Stonehenge. That got me thinking how these two triangles together form a 5 by 12 rectangle that has the same proportions as the station rectangle at Stonehenge. Following this hunch, I drew a line from the tip of the Federal Triangle to the center of Stonehenge, Later on, I happened to zoom into New York City when this layer was on, and saw that the alignment perfectly bisects Central Park. That's probably not an accident, so here we go. The angle that this large-scale alignment takes through Central Park matches the interlocking Pythagorean Triangle's hypotenuses. Four such triangles match Central Park's proportions of 5 to 24 precisely. I then wondered, what is this unusual aqueduct doing just under the surface of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis Reservoir? It seems to mirror the triangle's hypotenuse angle. That's certainly odd, but in my research I've learned to follow so-called coincidences wherever they lead. The aqueduct leads us to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Getting closer still, we see this variation of the Templar flag in the atrium of the Robert Lehman Collection. Incidentally, Albrecht Dürer's esoteric masterpiece, Melancholia I, is in this collection, and we'll study it in Egypt. In case you're thinking I'm imagining connections where none exist, right outside this room is one of the oldest artifacts in North America, a 3,500-year-old Egyptian obelisk from Heliopolis. Note the octagon surrounding yet another solar symbol. There are only a handful of ancient Egyptian obelisks left in the world, even counting those still in Egypt, so when I see one I sit up and take notice. This obelisk is the twin of Cleopatra's Needle in London. Egyptian temples typically had paired obelisks at their entrances, so the obelisks now in New York and London used to together frame the entrance to a temple in Heliopolis. It was quite a difficult and expensive project in the 19th century, and even today, to transport a 224-ton slab of granite halfway across the planet. Connecting nations with ancient Egypt was apparently a very powerful motivator to the Freemasons who bothered moving these obelisks. Overlaying the floor plan, we see what the aqueduct is pointing to, literally an ancient Egyptian temple within the Sackler wing of the Met. The Temple of Dender had to be removed from its original site in order to save it from being submerged by the construction of the Aswan High Dam. In 1965, the government of Egypt presented the temple as a gift to the United States, which was ceremonially represented by Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. That's quite a coincidence, considering the aqueduct in Jackie's Reservoir led us to the very temple she received. Was the former first lady playing the role of Isis? While we're in New York, let's take a look at one of the most famous tourist spots and greatest symbols of America and visit the Statue of Liberty. The authors Graham Hancock and Robert Bival have researched the Statue of Liberty, and you might be surprised what they have found. French sculptor and well-known Freemason Bartholdi designed the colossal statue originally for the opening of the Suez Canal in 1867. Fellow Freemason Gustave Eiffel, who was later made famous for his Parisian tower, was commissioned as the statue's engineer. It is said Bartholdi modeled the sculpture after the Roman goddess Libertas. The truth is Libertas was an echo of the Egyptian goddess Isis. After Bartholdi's colossus was rejected for the Suez Canal due to financial reasons, he repurposed it as the Statue of Liberty for New York Harbour. It comes as no surprise that the cornerstone for the Statue of Liberty was laid in a Masonic ceremony. Researcher Jim Allison has connected the dots and identified the triangle between Giza, Pharos, and the opening of the Suez Canal. The angle of this triangle matches the slope of the Great Pyramid and looks like the Greek letter Delta, which beautifully echoes the Nile Delta. The Colossus of Rhodes was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The giant statue that stood on the island of Rhodes depicted Apollo, god of the sun, who also wore a crown of seven rays. Seven rays is very interesting in light of the culmination of the initiation ceremony into the cult of Isis. According to 19th century author Edward Schur, after a successful initiate survived all the harrowing tests, and triumphed over death by fire, water, and temptation of the senses, he was led into an inner sanctum where he looked upon a colossal metal statue of Isis crowned with a diadem of seven rays. I believe seven is Isis's secret number. Isis's son Horus was god of the sun, just as Apollo, depicted in the Colossus of Rhodes, was god of the sun to the Greeks you'll see that the Statue of Liberty's base star is quite odd, having 11 points. I think this was done to make the number symbolism in the Statue of Liberty fit an important Egyptian structure, the Great Pyramid of Giza, whose height to base proportion is 7 to 11, like the famous convenience store's name. And if you didn't get 11 from the base star, the height of the statue from heel to top of head is 111 feet one inch. So it all fits now. You see how the Statue of Liberty secretly depicts the Egyptian goddess Isis.
0: So with that, we'll just give it a pause right there. You can, We'll add this information in. We'll make it available to you. We want you to check it out and see what we're getting you into, what we're trying to basically proliferate this information so that you can see that this particular system of priestcraft, this particular system of occult, numerical sorcery and sacred geometry the power elite love to make a deity they love to make a mathematical deity and you can see that this concept of the cult of isis and the seven levels of pythagorean brotherhood would come later and then ultimately the seven levels of initiation into elysium the seven levels of initiation which was the the cult of athena uh, the initiation of the the Athena of Athena, the temple there, and of course you have the later on the cult of Mithras, and then we would arrive at this transmission of this information in the Seder Square that would be so uh, instrumental in the, the build-up of Londinium and this the secret city of London and also the, the Vatican and its entire priestcraft and its entire structure of theogonic teaching and their dogmatic rituals, their incantations that they do that uh, follow along with the, the black magic Babylon, who worshipped Baal and committed sacrifices unto Baal for the rebirth of the sun god. That's what happened also in Egypt at the, the three longest of the year, December 25th. That was the winter solstice. That's when Babylon and Egypt would worship for the, the rebirth of the sun god. It has to do with Tammuz. It has to do with this ancient knowledge that people don't have nowadays. So everyone just goes with the Christmas tree. They go with the Baal Mass and the Pope worship. And they don't understand what the, the basis of it all is. So that's why we're bringing to you this connection through the Seder Square with ancient mystical Babylon and mystery the the priestcraft and the cult of ISIS in Egypt. And we're bringing that forward through time to see that the, the Gnostics uh, at the time of the buildup of the Roman bishop to become the, the seat of Satan, right? And there in Rome in the Vatican— was going to be based on this Gnostic knowledge and so you'd have these false Gnostic Gospels the gospel of Mary and all these kind of other nuances that would allow the the complex theology and doctrine of the Roman Magisterium to come about so that ultimately you'd have the the Council of Trent where they threw out all possible uh, connection with the the authority of the gospel and they and, and said in, in its place, with scriptural teaching and sola scripture, which they should have established at that time, the church introduced the traditions of men, the traditions of having Christmas trees, of having mistletoe by the by the door, which you kiss under. The idea of having Santa Claus—I mean, all all these kind of pagan concepts would be allowed as traditions, spoken of by you know by the previous church fathers as being good and efficacious. They would make these concessions with Carnival, and they would allow these ancient pagan Yuletide traditions into the religion of Jesus Christ, and so that's how they would become polluted doctrineers of this, and they would become inseminated by the syncretism of secret Gnostic teachings from the ancient past and from Egypt and Babylon, so the Vatican, you know, was just an extension of the Mithraic seven levels of initiation of the Pater Noster. So that's why we have to look at the Seder Square. All right, so having really Got into that is as far as we need to. Let's look at our next video because we're trying to basically use these visual cues to show you the mystery that it's hard to see without well, Unless We have satellites, us, we can go high into the atmosphere and see the curvature of the earth. We can't see how these ancient civilizations were being built. We can't see how these Freemasonic orders transmitted their knowledge and how they built up this empire here in Washington, D.C.
3: What secrets in plain sight connect the Freemasons to Stonehenge by the number 33? We're going to take a look at what is likely the most potent alignment on Earth. It runs from the George Washington National Masonic Memorial to Stonehenge via the heart of New York City, directly over Wall Street and within 650 meters of 911 Ground Zero. Besides New York, Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston are all within six kilometers of the line. This means that the majority of power spots in the United States, and indeed in the world, are on a line from the most important Masonic monument in the U.S. and possibly in the world to the world's most iconic megalithic structure of Stonehenge. The George Washington National Masonic Memorial in Alexandria, Virginia is fashioned after the ancient lighthouse of Alexandria in Egypt, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It serves to memorialize both George Washington and every American who ever was or will be a Mason. It is also exactly 333 feet tall. At the other end of the line, Stonehenge is 33 meters across, echoing the memorial's height in a sense. For Freemasons, 33 is a most important number. Perhaps the easiest way to highlight the importance of 33 to the Masons is by noting that it is the highest degree a Scottish Rites Freemason can obtain. While all preceding 32 degrees can be obtained by merit and ritual, The 33rd is reserved only for the chosen ones. Back in New York, we see that the line passes close to the Statue of Liberty, perhaps the most well-known symbol of the United States. It is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, one of only four New World building sites in the U.S. with that distinction. Its pedestal rises from a cornerstone laid in full Masonic ceremony, a moment commemorated with this plaque on the 100th anniversary in 1984. In fact, this line passes exactly 333 meters from the Statue of Liberty. Knowing that the Statue of Liberty is Masonic, that the two iconic structures are separated by 333 kilometers just might not be an accident. Looking at Washington, first notice that there is a broken pentagram inscribed in the city street grid. Now, take a bisector of the Pentagon War Headquarters and project it until it crosses the Masonic Stonehenge Line. Define a circle on this point with radius of exactly 6,666 meters and see that it passes through the middle of the pentagram inscribed in the Washington Street grid. In addition, a second radii connects the two apexes of the pentagram. This coincidental arrangement of sixes and fives perhaps is also not by accident when you consider that the Masonic Washington Monument is 555 feet tall, which is equal to 6,666 inches. Expanding our view, we see that our line goes through the tip of the Mississippi River Delta on its way towards Teotihuacan with its famous Pyramid of the Sun. To be precise, the line ends up passing exactly 33.333 kilometers from the Wikipedia point for both the Pyramid of the Sun, the third largest pyramid in the world, and for the whole of the well-known Teotihuacan site. Looking from above, we can see how the Pyramid of the Sun and the Forbidden City in Beijing are aligned with one another. We see that this line passes through the Comox Valley, aligning with 33 kilometers of Vancouver Island coastline and passing within a kilometer of Hornby Island. The Forbidden City houses the Palace Museum, pictured here, which is the most visited museum in the world by a wide margin. At 14 million visitors per year, it beats the second-place Louvre Museum in Paris by over 50%. It is also just across the street from Tiananmen Square, a site of the brutally suppressed student democracy demonstrations of 1989. So I just want to pause it there because it makes an interesting reference
0: to the Louvre in France and their strange uh, occultic you know, glass pyramid, which is the very point of that particular ley line as it passes over. You can see with the in China and the Forbidden City that these this ancient knowledge of building great geopolitical power structures on these particular ley lines and the ability to calculate them, the ability to harness geometry and mathematics and understand the the curvature of the Earth and understand the circumference of the Earth to be able to actually like like surveyors do now when they set up their survey equipment and and build and set up. The height and depth and the longitude and latitude of certain points in order for the builders to come in and, and set buildings uh, to, to be plumb and level and, and situated properly. So all these these kind of technologies have been in place for a long time, and you can see that, that they've been utilized for a very long time. So we're back to our advanced class here with you guys, and it's, it's good to get a, a chance to articulate some of these ideas, and to share in this new medium, in in the internet, this new media to transmit this knowledge to a a younger audience, a new group of people who are looking for answers, who are looking for new ways to look at the world. And you're going to have to go back sometimes into the mysteries, into the, the deeper occult histories of... Of the human epic here on earth and as we go through this particular episode it's i have to do some background work here with you as we discuss some some of the relative issues that we're seeing playing out today as they have as we talk about the elites the globalists as they have this initiative towards Building global government, a single imperial world order, and just you know listening to Jay Dyer as he's kind of coming across with info wars, and during this time as all these kind of connections are being made, and we're we're starting to realize now that we had a, you know normalcy bias, and we had our, our ears stuffed with wax as we were terrified to hear the the truth of these matters. And we consigned everything to a conspiracy theory that just didn't sound like it was coming out of Kathy Gifford's mouth, right? If if, it wasn't coming out of the news desk, CNN or Fox, when the corporate brainwash would no longer soothe us, then we got to rely on this concept of conspiracy theory. And of course, the, the power elite, the intelligence apparatus fed into it with no end of reptilians, hoaxes and you know blue beam UFO sightings all kinds of disclosure of alien life anything to minimize distract or steer our eyes away from what's taking place right in front of our eyes here on earth so with our feet firmly planted on the ground we have to go back in time we have to start pretty far back in the beginning aware of this obsession of this cult this this inner doctrine the secret cult is operating so many of the, the, the secret societies. We see it demonstrated in words throughout history. It's still the epic concept of the Illuminati. People soothe themselves with this idea that there couldn't be any kind of power apparatus it's so pervasive and so complete that it could control all these features of the world. You know, all these different royal courts, all these different wars around the world, the different direction of technology itself, and the way that we circumnavigated the globe. way we navigated the world with our ships right over time before we could invent steam engines there couldn't be an elaborate system of a secret doctrine coursing its way through time and through the the human experience because all these events are just far too out of control and life itself and the circumstances of our fate here and this life is something that can't be manipulated by global elites, right? So that, that, such a thing is just a fallacy. And we waste our time just trying to imagine a, a, a fantasy because the truth is is more t- terrifying, right, according to this premise. The truth is, is that nothing is being manipulated. There is no global elite. There is no history of a secret Illuminati that tried to control the world. Those, those things are just fantastic compensation for our terror that nothing is in control, and the world is really just spinning totally out of control. There is no secret force of elite power. And so these are the kind of concepts we hear bantied around today. And of course, as we're looking at the new media, really powerful instruments of graphic, computer-generated cinematography. You know, so we're looking at the peripheral, of the new show, and they're going to start to discuss some of these deeper issues that no one has any clue about nowadays because people can't read anymore. They just, they only hold their phones in front of themselves while they walk. Nowadays, when we walk around and we think and we get our latte, we just hold our phone up and that's, that's it. We just have our little beacon transmitting to the satellite uplink, right? We just walk about. It, it leads us right in front of us. We have it in our hand. I see down at the, uh, at the university there in, in Florida, the Florida university, right? The, uh, young people just ride around in their scooters. course, scooters have two handles, but this becomes overly taxed, but you have to have a a latte in in one hand and a phone in the other, so this complication's there, and you see the young people scrambling about, trying to hold their phone up in one hand, and trying to steer their speeding, crazy little carts about, right, with one hand and the other, and so this is the kind of world we live in, we're becoming insane, we're becoming debauched you know, Hunter Biden is just a joke on Saturday Night Live now. You know, it's a child molestation, you know, minor t- attracted persons, right? So, because pedophiles are so mean. These people can't help themselves. They're minor attracted people, right? We don't hang them anymore. Every time I put a noose up on Facebook, they take it down and ban me. I think we should hang hang pedophiles. I mean, right? I mean, this is, this is what civilization is. Civilization is when you hang pedophiles. And if you don't, if you don't do that, and you don't have civilization anymore. I think it's as pretty simple as that. So, we have to take a look at this theme that we're seeing in purple. It's just kind of being drawn out about the interconnecting ley lines of power. And the interconnecting ley lines of power, have to, it has to do with mysticism, and has to do with the ancient occult ideology and the power practices of the elite. And it goes back a long time. So, that's what we have to discover here, that these new builders, these new... Uh, freely building Freemasons, if you will, that are building this new world order, are building it in congruity with the old system itself. So we have to take you back in this episode quite a long ways in our discussion to Pythagoras. And Pythagoras goes back to before the time of Christ, five and a half centuries. So it goes back quite a long time. And Pythagoras' history is very curious because he's a Greek gentleman but he, and he has a fascination of course with math and geometry geometry being the central note and the central theme and all these different parallels in this episode and he historically is a mysterious figure reminds me somewhat of muhammad But pythagoras is going to be an individual who is in egypt studying the priestcraft the, the, the ancient mystery practices of the occult priesthood of egypt and the book of the dead and the worship of the sun, God Ra, and the Pharaoh, their their high priest, right? Which is an early transformation of the Pontifex Maximus cult that we see in Rome today. So, you know, much like the Pope, the, the Pharaoh was the head leader of the state chosen and the head leader of the cult, the religious apparatus. And he is like the Babylonian priest Kings. He is the ultimate incarnation of God's identity and will. And, you know, the pharaoh is, for all practical purposes, the vicar of Christ, right? He's the vicar of Ra, right? So there's the comparisons there. And we see that this system of occult practice and priestcraft in Egypt is also highly, if not inherently, mathematical. So that Pythagoras is there in Egypt to learn this occult practice, to be initiated into the high high rites, the Egyptian initiation rituals, but also to learn the mathematical secrets and the way that they deal with proportionality and the way that they deal with pi, you know, all, all these kind of things. How they break down and reckon the thirds and all things, and, and how you measure the, the space inside of a circle. Those are just different ways of dealing with magic, or we understood that to be the ways that they pagan systems uh, dealt with magic and these systems were the same ones that the Jewish people were enslaved to when Moses came and called his people to be set free from Pharaoh so on so you can see these large themes here and I want to bring this up to the present day as we go through this with the mystery religion, the mystery cult of Mithra Mithra which would become much later it was completely universally popular by the fourth century after the time of christ so this is AD and a domini and in the third and fourth century at that time and it had been building had been there all along but it, it, it rose to this point of, of popularity among the legionaries and the soldiers of rome who were traveling all throughout the various contested lands of the empire and fighting end up uh, being uh, you know merged with the other cultures and, and subcultures and tribes and peoples of the world from north africa to gaul you know in the north so these roman uh, legionaries are going to get all over the place and they're going to you know slowly this the popularity of the cult of mithra the seven rays the seven degrees of initiation of the mithraic traditions and we're going to tie that in because it's, it's much later it's almost a thousand years the time of Pythagoras, but you can see that the emanation of Pythagorean ritualism and, and mathematical cult, a geometry worship or worship of numbers, is going to become completely universalized from a, su- a, a tiny secret subcult that no one ever heard of to a universal system of secret society. So Mithra- Mithraic traditions are going to be a universal club of initiation. And the mystery rites transmitted there and we don't have to we can go to our our, later to our freemason authors to see how that that's all connected and so that miss freemasonry today also obsessed with number also worshiping at the shrine of the 33rd degree right is is an extension of this older and ancient iteration of the mystery religions. So this is going to be a discussion about astrotheology and mystery religion and the way that these ancient empires built on massive global ley lines. So we're going to get into something that might be a little bit out of our depth here. We'll add in the show links and we'll take our time to work through some of these themes and describe them in detail so that in this audio context, we can learn to you know use our mind more in depth, right? We don't need a ritzy picture all the time. We can we can think, we can get out a, a pen and we can we can doodle lines and we can conceptualize within our the our own intellect with no trouble. So we don't need a, always the framework of a YouTube, right? But they're there to be helpful nonetheless. So as we're going forward, I thank you for returning again. We're gonna do our very best to take this to the next level and to make what is invisible clear and what is unseen to be tangible and what is occult to become illuminated. So that's what we're going to work to do here on this episode. And thank you again for returning. So in the furtherance of the episode here, we have the next video enter the house of the temple and we're going to do a little tour of the inside of the Supreme council of the 33rd degree in the temple there in Washington, D.C., which is of course central to our theme here, and it's a, cent- it's a center there in Washington, D.C., on the pentagram of the city and also on the center of this massive, large scale, great circle ley line that intersects with the Mayan temples throughout Texas, across the United States, through Washington, D.C., and through into Stonehenge. So these are the kind of alignments and calculations. By degrees, of you know longitude and latitude across the surface of the Earth, this geometric, which is literally, as we'll find out from David Flynn, the measurement, the metric of the geo or the measuring of the Earth. And that's what geo mean, geometry and geometric is. So let's continue here with this fascinating video, and of course, in order to really see the inside of the uh, the, the house of the temple, which is based on the Temple of Halei Carnassus, which was the Temple of Mount And that's where we get the word mausoleum today. And of course, this is the mausoleum of Albert Pike. And Albert Pike is a, a fascinating figure who, who comes up again and again in our episodes, who we have to recognize as the highest level Illuminati, a 33rd degree Freemason that was operating during the Civil War and was connected with the Jesuits, Pierre de Schmidt and also with the Mormons, and with the KKK, and also connecting with, in his time, Mazzini in Italy, who was the head of the Italian branch of the Illuminati in Europe, and he created the right, the, the supreme right of the 33rd degree, and was one of the originators of this vast, called initiation. So Albert Pike, is someone who will have to look at it again and again.
4: you all looking to take a tour? Yeah. Uh, yes, please. Are there any new masons? no. no. It takes about an hour
5: and it's eight dollars So here we are in the Grand Lodge of Scottish Rite of Freemasonry here in Washington DC We are inside the building right now. I'm going
4: to take a little bit of a tour check out some of the scenery in here. This is Albert Pike. He was our Grand Commander from 1859 until 1891 when he died in the office. Uh, the reason why he's so significant is because he rewrote the rituals of masonry. And he rewrote the code book, Morals and Dogma. We have his body downstairs. Was there another like, kind of Grand Commander before Albert Pike? Yeah, there were several Grand Commanders before him, but he's the most prominent. Uh, he died at 82 years old, and so we asked him Grand Commander stepped down in their 81. I was rather blown away
5: by the uh, really the occult significance of the architecture inside the building. Um, We were shown one of the main ritual rooms where they conduct their rituals where only members of the 33rd degree are allowed in there and the tour guide himself didn't seem to know a whole lot about the actual symbols and the meaning behind uh,
4: some of the symbolism. So we call this room our temple room. Uh, It's not actually designed to look like a Christian temple. You'll notice the dome above us. It weighs 330 tons, and there's only steel found at the base of it. The reason why there's a hole or an oculus is because masons believe anything that is perfect must be created by God. Uh, There are 33 chairs in this room. They're 33 degrees in Scottish Rite Masonry. Uh, 33 states in the southern jurisdiction, so that's why you'll see the number 33. All the wood in this room is from Russia. It's Russian walnut. The altar in the middle of the room is black marble cord from Lake Champlain in New York. And the Hebrew writing in the middle says God said, let there be light, and there was light. So there's three with
5: one missing it looks like. Is this the I don't know north, exactly. south, west, and the east is missing or No, um That would
4: be the east. That would be the east? Because that's north. Right. right. Um I don't know why that is missing actually.
5: I asked him why there were only three lights at the altar. And uh, he said he wasn't too sure why, but there are three because one represents the east, one represents the west, one represents the south. But in masonry, the north is the place of darkness. And of course, uh, according to the Bible, the Bible tells us that the north is where God resides. Masonic Holy Bible.
4: this built? In 1911 it was started and it was finished in 1915. Uh, This was the architect's first major building. He went on to do the National Archives, National Gallery of Art, and the Jefferson Memorial. The snakes represent chaos, and the further up you go in the windows, the more light they let in, symbolizing enlightenment. So it's supposed to mean when you join masonry, you join at a time of chaos in your life, and the further up you go in degrees, the more enlightened you become.
5: So in the beginning, you just have to be open to the concept of there being a God. Uh, But as you work your way up the ranks, and you gain enlightenment, he showed us windows in there that get brighter and brighter as you go up. And I found that very interesting. The windows were also surrounded by serpents. I asked him, what is the symbolism of the serpent? He said, that's all about order out of chaos. The, The serpents represent chaos. And that is the motto of Freemasonry, really, is order out of chaos. This is precisely
4: how they can gain their control. The pillars are 30 tons of Windsor granite, uh, quarried from uh, uh, Indiana, and the velvet is 400 pounds of Italian velvet. This chair we have right here is called the Tyler's Chair. The man who sat here held a sword ceremoniously. It was his job to guard this room during council sessions to make sure people didn't listen in. Of course, we have the sword downstairs and it's not sharp. I don't think he had to hit anyone with it, but you never know. And know thyself is a quote from Pythagoras. Uh, it's a quote that Masons take part. So this room is called our executive chamber. You'll notice the Tyler sword right here, this is the, the sword the man held uh, that I was telling you about upstairs. As you can see, it's not sharp. This is the Grand Camp Commander Scepter, it's what he would carry in to start council sessions. And this case will only be opened in October of this year for council session. Hmm. Sessions every other year in October. This is where the 33 inspector generals would meet. There are 33 states in the southern jurisdiction. We are the headquarters of the southern jurisdiction of Scottish Rite Masonry. Uh, They would meet in here at night. They would discuss legislative and money issues in here. Upstairs is mainly used for rituals. The ceiling actually used to be open. It used to be an open ceiling, but they closed that off because the meetings in here were held at night. There was no point having an open ceiling. And the reason why there's a Bible, a Quran, and a Torah on the altar here is because you don't have to believe in uh, Jesus Christ. You can be anyone, uh, any religion just so long as you believe in God and be a Mason. These are just the holy books our leaders pray to.
5: The reason why they have the Quran and the Bible and the pen. uh, is because, uh, as he said in his own words, you don't have to believe in Jesus Christ. You just have to believe in the idea that there is a God. And that is because Freemasonry is very much an ecumenical movement. It brings together all kinds of religions because you have to be open to the concept of there being a god. They refer to the god as the grand architect of the universe. That way it can encompass everyone on earth. And and there can be members of the Brotherhood from the Muslim world. Members of the Brotherhood from the Christian world. All over the world bringing them all together.
0: So there's a lot to get into with this particular episode here. And I think that we need to show you the different visual cues and the different videos that we have lined up in the show notes so that we can t- kind of talk about them. Short little YouTube videos or what have you that are going to show you what we're trying to describe when it comes to great earth geometry. And this with Google Earth now it becomes a lot more plain over the course of centuries as these kind of ley lines and power dynamics were built up over time politically and, and connecting in the vivid way on these parallels, these circumferences, these circles that segment our world. And in this process of showing you this, the eventual technology where we use GPS to track people anywhere on this grid by latitude and longitude. And these kind of concepts are are being long-held secrets of travelers, travelers to the east. And so what we're trying to show you is this interconnectivity between London, City of London, and in this case, Stonehenge, being this central point of cultism, the central point of Celtic pagan practices that's resurging now. But it was always a long-held esoteric ritual that was... The druids and the system of priestcraft that was developed there was not different than the one we see iterated again and again in egypt and babylon and mesopotamia and assyria and the same thing holds true again when we point out that babylon was holding the worship of the the three longest nights of the year the high occult black ceremony of the the babylonian priest kings Right, of Nebuchadnezzar, that ancient line of power and black magic and ritualism, that was cultivated in the, the child sacrifice and the orgies and the orgiastic drunken revelry and the taking of various substances that would evoke hallucinogenic states. Depending on the, that was the the rites of of Elysium, the rites of Eleusis, the Eleusian r- mysteries were no different either. They were practiced by the Athenians, and they would have seven levels of initiation, and this is the same structure that you're seeing again with the Pythagoreans and then later on, much later with the Mithraic the rites of Mithras, the Mithraic brotherhood that the Roman legions were into. Of course the Roman legions were very far north in this stronghold of Saxony and Vikings and ancient warlords and Druids and Londinium so that's what we're going to go back into the history here. Londinium was the original fortress, there was a Roman fort, and around that Roman fort would become the secret practices and the secret sovereignty and banking hegemony that would become the bank of the city of London today, the, the inner city. This is the banking square mile. So we should have already got that down to a clear understanding by now, working with you guys. So we're just pointing out that there's just a direct line of connection between these these rituals with Londinium, the ancient Roman fort of the legions, the legions there that had to man the fort and often fight the warlords there. And what, what you're gonna see there is that the Druidic magic and the Mithraic rituals that were coming from very separate lands from very far away have a deep congruency in as much as the Londinium and the power structure of London And these megaliths, Stonehenge, out on this island that we understand to be Great Britain are built on these ley lines. So there becomes a a macro position where you have to kind of take yourself up to the 50,000 foot view and view the larger ley lines and circular associations and great circle geometry that these cities and locations are built on and connected to. And In some way, you can understand this to be in The Lord of Rings, how in Mordor was the great you know tower and the great eye, and then there was another tower taken over by Mordor when they took over the White Wizard, and they started to control that the White Tower and use it to serve Mordor. The same kind of concept is in place when you recognize that Washington, D.C., and then Boston and Philadelphia and these other major cities are all built on this direct ley line that connects to Stonehenge. So that's what we're gonna get into here, guys. We're gonna get into this understanding of ancient occult knowledge. And we've kind of been building up to this. We've been working hard in lots of different ways. We've been um, showing a lot of the background knowledge and information and kind of like getting to the point where we can kind of comprehend a lot of this information. And not only are we, is Washington, D.C. interconnected on these power ley lines, these grids of geometric precision the actual dynamics militarily and of course our national debt being so massive our national debt going into the trillions and of course that debt being as we're understanding as the the bank of england has to restructure itself has to re you know reorder things we can see that the the massive exploding debt that we're under is affecting those who, who extend the credit to us our creditors and you can imagine now that with this new liege lord, this new sovereign here, Charles, as he's he's basically taking over the throne. You can see that as soon as Queen Elizabeth II was gone, all of a sudden we're blowing up pipelines, and you know we'll see that there'll be a marked, distinct change in the attitude and the atmosphere here as there's a new monarch that kind of takes the, the, the helm here. And I think that as national governments and democracy and constitutional, legit de jure government becomes harder and harder to come by, I think these older forces of monarchy will are in a resurgence. So as we're going forward here we have to show you this the way that things were designed from the beginning and show you some of the secrets that are not easily understood and we have to recognize that there's a central great circle around earth at the equator and if you move north or south from the equator the the circles as we move up are smaller and smaller concentric rings they get smaller and smaller to the north and south pole and going from east to west with the north and south pole as the axis you'll see that all the lines of longitude going north and south are all great circles because they're all central dissections of the center line of Earth's sphere so and, with this understanding, we'll just go forward. And of course, it's gonna be more clearly explained as we go through the videos, but what we're trying to reveal here, we'll get into another look here with David Flynn, his remarkable work. It's and a lot of his views are just very fascinating. So I have to take a look at these underlying themes and we'll be able to look at the world in a more clear in geopolitics, in the international affairs. And of course, as we're moving forward, we'll look at the United Nations and the United Nations, even its own symbol and its own flag is one of these large webs of intersecting circles that make up the the world's globe of course they're trying to descend popular belief into this flat earth theory which is just a mind-numbing erasure of all legit logical knowledge and information and so once you get to a flat earth all this information that we're going to discuss in this episode becomes moot and it becomes lost in the the ideological and philosophical warfare as people just change their mind and bend their intellectual instrument into a pretzel trying to understand the world in a different way and now we have to have a central earth that's still and like a a sun that that moves around and spins around the earth and so it becomes kind of an academic madness that overtakes people And so, but really what's happening, the whole purpose of that, the artfulness, is to reduce people back to the dark ages, literally and figuratively both, when people did believe their world was flat and couldn't imagine anything beyond the the, the hillside where the sun set in their little hamlet. So as we're trying to maintain ourselves and to resist the overthrow of popular government, the the massively growing wealth of the middle class, the small businesses, you know, with the, the Great Reset of the World Economic Forum Plan to reduce everyone to eating bugs and no one can come by any meat. Well, in my community, we drive by farms all the time where there's innumerable hundreds and hundreds of cows everywhere. The steaks piled up to the uh, top of the trees around here. So I don't know what they're talking about, but we're going to continue to eat steaks and continue to be prosperous and to and to do the things we need to do and, and to acknowledge truth, even when it hurts, even when it's difficult to face hard-hitting information that changes our worldview, we have to be courageous enough to, to take a look at it. But the point of this intro discussion and reading, and we'll discuss this further, because we're looking into this connection between the original root of the Pythagorean brotherhood, which brought the, the cult of Babylon and Assyria and Egypt, brought it forward into the Greco-Roman period. With the, and, and, and that's how, he, how Pythagoras had all the proliferation of all this geometric magic, or you know, the magical geometry, the, the power of numbers which is their great religious, the central re- religious theme of their entire cult worship is this worship of numbers. So that's what's going to become quintessential here to understand, is that as they have these these um, particular, and it goes far, far beyond just mathematics, but a, a sense of supernal and metaphysical and ethereal sorcery that they can derive the classic concept of magical intuition and so on and so forth comes and derives originally out of this Babylonian Egyptian priestcraft. And so it's carried through, forward through time, through the Pythagorean Brotherhood, and eventually it arises and becomes popular and becomes the a thesis within the, the development of Londinium as a foundational and essential belief system of the Roman the Roman soldiers, the, the Roman legionaries, were well known to be thoroughly Mithraic, myth, and there were seven levels of initiation. And so this is gonna bring us forward in time, of course, to the power of the city of London, the power of the Grand Lodge of Freemasonry, which was established in London in 1777, if I'm not mistaken. And so we can understand how they were calculating their travel over towards the new world in the Western Hemisphere was, over the course of time, a matter of academic proportions as they were would find out what was the perfect alignment From Stonehenge. And these alignments go back to the Atlantean theories. And of course, that's a biblical allusion to the antediluvian world, which was Noah's world. And during the time of Atlantis, there was said to be advanced technology, a world empire, a system of worldwide, global, interconnected travel. And this great deluge, the flood would destroy the world and, and reset the clock back to the doomsday clock, if you will, back to a, a cosmic zero point. Mount Ararat to is where Noah's Ark is, is known to famously be. Mount Ararat near Turkey and, and in the Middle East there. in as much as that now we have to recognize that the, the, the we can see that there was an ancient ley lines and you can go to the Nazca lines in Peru and you can see that there's all this these, these, you know, massive megalithic stone structures, like the Trilithon, and we're going to get into that, too, as we go forward in this fascinating episode. Looking glass for them. So we're coming off of the disclosure of that last clip also. We're looking at the the house of the, the temple there, and we were looking at the very fascinating legacy of Albert Pike. So in that vein, in, in order to disclose more about the Supreme Council of the 33rd Degree... And the the high level occult system of elite power, you know, and globalism that we're seeing established here. And so we see globalism in a whole new light now with this understanding about the great circle alignments upon which they build their geopolitical power apparatus. So this next issue uh, shows the connection with Albert Pike to Washington D.C. and the grip of control that the this power elite has had over. The emergency war powers, military government, especially the one that was established there in 1933. So, you know, you're starting to see a theme there. So let's listen here to this InfraWars article. And it's very just very short. I think it's like four minutes. Ultimately, I think it just it just shows you the establishment of this system.
6: Recently. The University of Texas pulled the Jefferson Davis statue from its campus because of a growing irrational fear of American history. On the northwest axis of 3rd and D in the nation's capital sits the Albert Pike statue, dedicated to the leader of the southern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite, a title Pike held for 32 years. He was also a Confederate Brigadier General. He was also the Chief Judicial Officer and Arkansas Grand Dragon of the newly formed, Formed Ku Klux Klan. This is the only statue in Washington, D.C. commemorating a Confederate soldier, much less a founding member of the Klan. In fact, Pike was said to have owned a bracelet that allowed him perpetual communication with Lucifer himself. So if the Confederate flag is being denounced and Jefferson Davis and other Confederate monuments are under consideration for removal, why does this statue still remain? Simple. Pike is highly revered by the very occultic groups in control of the puppet government installed in Washington, D.C. His 1871 letter to Illuminati Mafia founder Giuseppe Mazzini predicts a succession of three world wars, a game plan followed to a T by the global elite. It was Pike that wrote the rituals that would create a secret society within a secret society. The 33rd Degree The 33rd degree would serve as a continuation of the Luciferian goals established by an older order known as the Order of the Palladium. All Master Masons brought into the higher degrees would have to take orders from higher Masons. This long list of initiates includes presidents, Supreme Court justices, and military leaders. It was Pike and Illuminati conspirators that infiltrated the world of Freemasonry, armed with a doctrine to establish a one-world order. These conspirators such as Lord Henry Palmerston of England and Otto von Bismarck of Germany Built global hubs for the Illuminati, and these hubs, known as the Supreme Councils of the Scottish Right, like the one located at 1733 16th Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., have been in operation ever since. Washington, D.C. itself is reputed to have been designed to represent a pentagram in the Masonic Square and compass, which would add to the confusing manner in which the streets of the District of Criminals are set up. Masons have long argued that Pike was not a member or founding father of the Klan. However, the 1905 publication, Ku Klux Klan, Its Origin, Growth, and Disbandment, by J.C. Lester and D.L. Wilson, clearly lists Albert Pike as one of its founding members. This book was intent on glorifying the Klan and its origins, hardly an effort to spread misinformation. If awareness grows... The very people behind the liberal agenda to spread political correctness while abandoning our ugly American history will have clumsily uncovered a nest of treasonous activity and Luciferian dogma exposed in the light of day. Albert Pike issued this statement to the 23 Supreme Councils of the world. We worship a God, but it is the God one adores without superstition to you. Sovereign Grand Instructors General We say this That you may repeat it to the brethren Of the 32nd, 31st And 30th degrees The Masonic religion should be By all of us initiates of the high degrees Maintained in the purity Of the Luciferian doctrine Albert Pike July Fourteenth, 1889 John Bound for InfoWars.com <laughs> So I think
0: that's a necessary caveat, and of course we include that, and you can go through all this information. We want to also, as we're just kind of quickly going through this, we're pressed for time. We're working hard here trying to just get as much of this uh, outline established and to flesh this out as much as possible. We have one more video. Of course, I think it's important, and it was always a fascinating video series, Secret Mysteries of America's Beginnings, and this is in part one. And we're going to just show you how they have, of course, Brother William Snowbellen, who we have, you know, showed in other past uh, episodes dealing with the, the Mormon temple and so on. And we have, he goes, you know, did they discuss in this video the alignment, this great circle alignment that connects Stonehenge. And it shows the aspirations and the cunning, you know, work of the, the those who believed in this new Atlantis and that America was this new land, and they had this um, this alignment and these great the calculation of the, these great ley lines to be convincing proof in their minds that America was to be the new Atlantis. So, with that, let's just take a look at this video, and we're just going to obviously just show a piece of it. And it's you know it's a really long documentary, and you have to just check it out in your own time. And we're like 17 minutes in, I believe, if you want to fast forward to that section
7: masonry's most popular debates, especially with films like National Treasure, and books such as The Da Vinci Code, Born in Blood, and Holy Blood, Holy Grail, seem to involve the mysterious Knights Templar, whose connection to Freemasonry is often seen at the Rosslyn Chapel in Scotland's capital city of Edinburgh, a place that not only reveals much about the Templars and Masonry, but within may be secrets to the Founding of the New World, but whatever the connection or controversy, most masons trace their craft back to the mysteries of ancient Egypt. Egypt is like pretty much the proximate fountainhead of all esoteric mystery teaching. After the example of the Egyptian craftsmen, the masons carved their own imagery in the great structures of Europe. Secret signs and symbols were embedded into their work, the meaning of which was to be hidden from outsiders. These were the craft masons who actually built the temples. If you look at European architecture, you know those all those big cathedrals in Europe, Cologne Cathedral in Germany, uh, Notre Dame in Paris, Salisbury Cathedral in England, all those beautiful cathedrals were all built around the 1200s and 1300s. And it was these masons who knew their business and they wanted to keep their skills secret all the great cathedrals of Europe were built by stonemasons who had an understanding of esoteric war and they're basically riddles in stone when Masons came to America they practiced their trade in the same way they had in Europe embedding secret codes within the design and foundation of the American colonies. Some believe this may account for the geographic location of the five great Revolutionary War cities. In particular, Boston, New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. have all been built in perfect alignment along the eastern seaboard. Researcher Jim Allison believes this alignment
8: may be a part of something greater. Let me say this. I think it is very unlikely that the alignment is coincidental. According
7: to Allison, the alignment of cities and ancient sites are part of a series of great circles that encompass the Earth. These circles are supposedly like lines of power upon which significant sites are built.
8: The simplest example, the most obvious example of a great circle, though, is the equator. Because it runs around the center of the Earth, it runs due east-west. Meridians of Longitude, which run due north-south through the north and south pole, If you extend it all the way around, those are also great circles because they run through the center of the earth. Allison claims that mystical sites like the pyramids,
7: Easter Island, the Mayan and Aztec cities are all built upon these great circles. In addition, one of these great circles contains the five cities that date back
8: to the era of the American Revolutionary War. Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York City, and Boston are, in fact, aligned. They're fairly close together. The distance from Washington, D.C. to Boston is 400 miles. And as a result of that, you can you can see the alignment just on a flat map, because the, the curvature of the Earth is not so much over that distance um, to to distort it, but on a on a three-dimensional map it's it's
7: even clearer but is this just a curious coincidence or could there be some hidden meaning behind it in the 1920s an englishman named alfred watkins noted a series of straight tracks or lines upon the earth's surface
8: that seemed to connect the ancient monuments and holy sites around the world what he found was that in a number of cases, a number of these monuments were Aligned in just in dead straight lines that extended from a few miles to, in some cases, many miles. Uh, he coined the term ley lines to describe and to explain these alignments. Um, Watkins believed that there are some type of grid lines that run through the earth lines of energy or magnetism or electromagnetism or some other kind of. Traction over the earth, and that's what—that's what he described as ley lines. Um, Watkins believed that the builders of these sites were aware of these lines that ran through the earth, and that they intentionally built these monuments, on these lines. While
7: Watkins' findings were not openly received by all, his views have been most often embraced by members of the esoteric community. In the main Hult is this concept of ley lines, L-E-Y, uh, which are lines of force that are, some people say, are like the acupuncture points of the earth. And you always want to build things. On a ley line, all the great cathedrals of Europe are built upon these ley lines which are like currents of power. These currents of power are thought to have magical significance. Some believe they act as portals for spirits to travel to and from the ancient monuments that fall within these alignments. But the question remains were such power lines important to the builders of early American cities? Were they aligned with a secret purpose in mind? So with that, I think, you know, it's
0: a two-hour documentary, so I think that that's enough said right there. But you can go and you can watch, and they have a fascinating exposure of this kind of little-known system of Merkinball or global power structures that are being established. And in order to kind of set up this last video, this is one of my uh, my, favorite kind of lectures from a very interesting fellow, David Flynn, and he will go into his look, his perspective of the whole situation. And he was one who believed that there was some kind of aerial phenomenon going on with, you know, low-flying, you know, UFO crafts. You know, I mean, whether they were you know, aliens or not, you know, there were people that were observing these these low-flying uh, crafts around Area 51. I think later on we're going to just find that it's, you know, black black ops, military black ops were testing projects. So he gets into that a little bit. But one of the most significant uh, significant issues that he really gets into is the Book of Enoch. And it talks about the Watchers, and it has to do with the point in, in the very ancient knowledge, uh, the ancient Gnostic Arcane knowledge that described the point when the gods came down to earth, and this was something that uh, that the ancient cult practitioners of Rome were, were someone were people who, who believed in this uh, in this ancient knowledge, and so it's not something that a lot of people know about. But we have to recognize that first when he gets into the, his lecture, he describes the the change in the longitudinal meridian from France to England. So the point, the zero point when we start counting our meridians, this Greenwich line to the Greenwich meridian, which is the line that runs from north to south and runs through England, is the Greenwich line. It's the zero point by which we start counting lines of longitude from east to west. So this is the new line of longitude, but the old line of longitude was in France, and this was the old Rose Line or Roslyn. So you have to recognize that the old the Rose Line was the zero point in navigational charts for many, many centuries, up until the 1800s when it became, when it was moved over a little bit to England. And of course, that old occult knowledge of this old Rose Line or the Paris Line that went through France is the point at which we begin to count out are 33 degrees, okay? So we, we, we can't, it doesn't apply properly, and it doesn't balance out correctly if we use the current Grinch line, which is on your current globe in the child's classroom or present map. But If you go back before the 18th century and you go back in time to the old Rose line, then we can calculate the occult knowledge. We can calculate the occult degrees that, um, that show us where the point is where the gods came down to earth And so I think that's fascinating because it goes back into the study of Mount Hermon. And so it goes back into very old, very lost, arcane, apocryphal knowledge that has really just, like I said, been lost to the modern-day church. But it, it, it explicates this connection in time between the ancient system of Greek mythology, which had Zeus up on Mount Olympus, with all the other gods and Hermes, you know, and and, uh, and, and the, the various gods, and they had all the very the the interactions, and the the, the point where Zeus came down and, and had children with female women, so it goes into the the background teaching, which is biblical of the Nephilim, the Nephilim were the the giants when the sons of angels, the sons the, the sons of, of, of God came down and laid with the daughters of men, and these Nephilim, these uh, giants were born, and it goes into Goliath. So th- there's a lot of background doctrine here that has to do with the Luciferian doctrine that is not apparent to people who don't have the proper understanding about what's happening here. So these ley lines, this understanding about Jerusalem, this connection with the 33rd degree, and these parallels, and and Albert Pike's explicit oath to keep to pure to the Luciferian doctrine is something that we have to you know, learn more about in order to more deeply understand here. So this video with David Flynn is going to go a long way to, even though some of his graphics are a little bit old, it's going to go a long way to help us understand what's happening in the, um, the mind of the occult world, and the mind of those who have this religious dogma and this deeply held sacred religious conviction about about the sacredness of numbers, and so they deify numbers in the occult world and in the the secret societies. And so we have to take a look at David Flynn's penetrating analysis. Of This whole issue and it goes back to the point where it, it has to do with Mount Hermon and it's very near to where Jesus went up on the mount where he was transfigured. And this is the point where it's the most highest mount in the north in the region. It's the point where he, he went, Jesus and his deity went to the top of the mountain and shone brighter than the sun. Uh, he brought his some of his apostles with him and it's this the same mountain where long ago it said that lucifer was cast down with the other fallen angels of which there was a third of the angels were cast down that's 33 33% of the angels of heaven were cast down under the, the with the fall of lucifer and so it's at this point where we see them come down from the heavens in in the old testament and have this interaction with humans and we can see that this is where we have to go back and it takes us back to this question of this ancient civilization, we can't hide it anymore because with these alignments there's much more than just these alignments, there's much more to come because really it goes back to the trilithon, and it goes back to the building of these massive stone foundations with blocks of stone that are said to be that are really so large and they're so massive that it said that actually the the current technology that we have available does not we don't have cranes or any kind of apparatus that's capable of moving these stones. And so we really don't have any explanation. We can we can go to some degree, some, to some extent to explain how the pyramids were built, but these trilithon stones there in Baalbek are absolutely inexplicable. And of course, the other ancient civilizations of Babylon would come and build, erect huge stones uh, on these sites. And of course, the Romans would come later and erect smaller uh, walls and more elaborate stone workings that still are, are, are still there today. So you can see that it, uh, Rome and Babylon understood that their occult foundations were built on these ancient structures uh, that were so monolithic that, we, like I said, we'll have to show you the imagery. And uh, David Flynn goes into a great detail about these sites and how they, how they, the current Freemasonic builders and global controllers who are. Calculating these ley lines and setting up sites in early uh, in, in early colonial America along these lines are people who understood that they were coming from the ancient past, the prehistoric past, pre-Babylon, pre-antediluvian, and, and the world of Atlantis. So that a lot of this knowledge, as hidden and suppressed as it is today, was something that the the ancient adherents to the occult. Druidic doctrines that we see from Stonehenge are aligned perfectly with those of the of Giza and the pyramids and with the pyramids in, in the structures that are there in South America. So without further ado, let's listen to some of this fascinating lecture by David Flynn. Well, I'm going to have to project my voice so if anyone can't hear, just let me know here. Early on, because
9: some of this stuff might get intense, and if you miss one point, you may be lost, and that would be awful. So, the first starting with the classical education that anybody who got a classical education would know Plato, the uh, earliest philosophers seem to have their act together, and one of the things that I think is one of the most salient to what I'm going to talk about is geometry and Plato said that geometry rightly treated is the knowledge of the eternal. Now just cursory look at that. It's like, well, he really was into geometry. He was really, really into uh, doing math. I <laughs> wasn't, uh, that wasn't the thing though, because he looked at it as a religion. He's talking about the eternal and eternity. The attribute of actually possessing eternalness is something that's ascribed to the main deity. Geometry of course isn't just uh, measuring circles and squares and determining angles, it's actually measuring the earth, geometry. It's actually incorporating both the name for earth and measurement. So how can measuring the earth somehow give us an idea of God, and in addition, Eternity connects to time. So how can time be connected to the Earth? Well, maybe we in modern uh, civilization haven't really connected with this understanding. Maybe it's antiquated thinking on Plato's part. But I assure you, that there are people who are around right now who've taken this quite literally and incorporated it into their religion. It's a religion of geometry. It's a religion... Is connected to this idea of eternity. I'm sure everybody has seen this before. This is a and Square, and it's you know it's not a secret, even though it's a, a symbol of a secret society. And I don't want to step on anyone's toes inadvertently. I'm not going to demonize Freemasons. But I'm gonna talk about something that I think the highest echelon of the lead understands. And this is the key. The, 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 the compass and square are things that you use to measure course angles and, and, uh, and build things with, but they're also very connected to the idea of maps and measuring distance on a map. And you can actually pick up quite a, a bit of information from the Freemason sites on the internet, or other grimoires or books that are out, because they they give us the information that we need to understand pretty much what they understand in their earliest you know their earliest levels that they move into. They see the symbols and they uh, incorporate this into each of the uh, initiate degrees, and they measure themselves a, a learned attainment on the degree that they move into. And it's interesting because the name compass in in Latin is cumpassus, which means by degree, by step, by increments. And so it doesn't have to necessarily connect to this idea of a magnetic compass. It doesn't have to be connected to this idea of this compass and square necessarily. It's just anything with degrees in it. So we're talking about Primarily circles, but anything that measures circles, and also the the system that actually measures them, and this is where the the uh, complexity comes in. Why did they just end at 33? Here's you have a representation of all the orders that you can possibly come up with when it comes to the Illuminated Fraternities. You have Order of the Knights Templar, Knights of Malta, uh, Rosicrucians, and the earlier Freemasons, the the uh, uh, the Scottish Rite. they list most of them right along this line here, but they end at 33, That's how they go. Well, everybody's had geometry in school. There's 360 degrees in a circle. What's up with 33? I just think that's going to be surprising to you when you see what's happening with it. Here we have Christ Himself as the creator of the universe, but He's using the compass, and He's actually creating. A circle with it. Here it's in the point, that's how you use it, and you describe a circle with it. So he's actually creating something that has degrees too that you measure, and that's also a compass. So, so the actual instrument and this symbol that is actually drawn with it can be considered compasses. Here's something I think that can tie the mystery into what a compass and 33 have going for it. Uh, what's going on with the whole system. This is called a compass rose. It's been used for hundreds of years by navigators on the ocean. And it incorporates 32 lines. And every one of these words here for the novice navigator would have to learn these 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 directions. They're all different. And you can see this is in a different language than English. So, But basically, it would be north, north by north. Northeast, north, northeast, you know, you go all the way through 32 times and then end up at this point, which is zero and 33. They found that 33 was the most important number in a system of measuring the earth and traveling on the earth. In the center of it, they actually incorporated rows, too. And this cross is pointing to the east, which represents Jerusalem. There's a connection going on there, too. This is known by navigators as boxing the compass. They would memorize all these names, 33 of them, from 0 to 32, and 32, of course, would be 0 at the same time, so you have the sublime 33 degrees. Or if you were going to talk about a perfect third, you have 33.333333 degrees. So they seem obsessed with 33. This is an early map from about the 1600s. You can see these compass roses here. They all have 33 lines radiating outward from various places. So what you could do, if you knew what your latitude was, which is pretty easy to do, you just keep a heading on one of these lines and you'll eventually run into land. And here's some Early navigators incorporating the compass roses. You can even see some red cross motifs in here too, which are very characteristic of the whole system of navigation connecting to the east. And you'll often hear fellow uh, Illuminated Fraternity members talking about their fellow travelers. They travel to the east. They're sons of the widow, and they're following the eastern star, and so on and so forth. It's all the same thing. This is a compass whose highest degree is 33 and 3rd. This is called the compass rose, which is interesting because rose is a play on the word for the Hebrew name of the head, Rosh. Here you have the skull and bones. And actual name for Golgotha, which was Aramaic, in Hebrew, "gogaleth" is spelled this way. These two letters, if you would actually connect them together, equal 33. G-L, G-L, or Gimel Lamed, Gimel And this is a Tav. So in the ancient Hebrew, the T was actually a cross. So symbolically, this is 33, 33, and a cross. So the name for a skull, place of the skull, Gal Galeth, actually symbolizes the same thing as this. Because it's a head, it's a Rosh. Just to play in words, and the classical education gave you Hebrew and Greek and Latin. I guess the higher up you would go, you get more Hebrew. There's a rose in the cross, more blatant, and this is what it's all about: Golgotha in Jerusalem. Jesus was uh, when, that, if you actually would look into the grimoires of uh, the Illuminated Fraternities, they say that Jesus was indeed 33. De- 33 years old when he was crucified and rose again. But they also leave out other parts that are important that we can actually look into the Bible to find. In the Torah, you can find that no one would would begin their teaching, uh, their ministry, or their their rabbinical work until they were 30 years old. And so, chronologically, they, they ascertain that Jesus was actually baptized at 30 and moved through his ministry for three years, finally ending up here. Now, the plot's going to thicken and also sort of set here. This is a system of measuring the Earth that navigators use. It's called uh, the navigational system for uh, uh, nautical miles. This is what you use if you're going to fly around the Earth uh, in a spaceship or in a plane because it's based on ratio. it's, It's a system based on ratio and time. It's not statute miles. Statute miles are something different. They're actually aligned to the uh, number of feet that Queen Elizabeth decided would fit into a mile on the Earth. This is based on a ratio. All it is is there's 360 degrees in a circle, and there's 60 minutes in an hour. So if you have a clock, and you know how many degrees are in a circle, and you have a good enough uh, catalog of having measured where the stars are every day for a whole year as we go around the Sun. You could move anywhere along in longitude, which is the lines that go up and down like this. You can move anywhere along this Earth and figure out if you had a good enough clock where you were by knowing the time and by knowing the system and having a chart. And you can actually measure the distance around the Earth because it's an easy equation, 60 minutes and 360 is 21,600, so there's 21,600 miles around the Earth at its greatest its, its greatest uh, circumference. It's called the Great Circle. And you have many Great Circle distances in longitude, only one for the equator in latitude. Because it gets smaller as you move out to the poles. But in olden times, they didn't have 360 degrees. In fact, the 360-degree system in navigation was used, All we can ascertain was... 1200 AD, all the way up to 1690, even though there was an understanding there were 360 degrees in the circle, you never did that with navigation, you just used the basic compass rows. Well, and guess what happens when you multiply 60 minutes times 33, or the perfect 33 and a third? Basically, what this is doing is measuring the whole earth then in increments that are just a ratio. And to make it clear, the ratio would be exactly the same for miles on, say, the size of a basketball, as it would for Jupiter or the Sun. It's always going to be the same distance around based on this ratio. It's just a measurement system. So if you actually have only 33 increments around a circle and you still are using the clock that has 60 minutes in it, you end up
0: with 2012. So this is a fascinating lecture, and it's going to go into some interesting connections between the, the Mayan and Aztec kind of predictions that have to do with what would happen in the coming ages and the coming cycles of time. So it's a fascinating lecture. We're just going to just step forward just a little bit here to just to sample a little bit more of this particular article. And so we jumped ahead to 51 minutes in, but you just you need to watch the whole thing. All right, so just check it out.
9: Let me get into something that's heavier. Everyone, I think if they connect 2012 to prophecy, will understand that there's something to do with the Mayan calendar. This is actually the Sunstone. It's an Aztec calendar that they borrowed from the Maya. Um, it was buried by the Spanish in uh, Tenochtitlan. And not discovered for maybe 200 years. It's about 12 feet across. It's huge. It weighs about 5 tons. They uh, they buried it. And then it was rediscovered in the 1700s. And interestingly enough, you can actually... Oh, not the 1700s. Don't quote me on this. But you can actually see here that they've recorded these four little destructive epics on the Earth. Each one of these represents 6,480 years in between each one. And a destructive epic. One by flood, one by fire, one by animals or something, and uh, there's one by earthquakes. And there's one left. Because the calendar ends here. It just so happens that we know now what that's all about when it comes to how the galaxy is aligned with uh, the ecliptic, and how that aligns with the solstice. It just so happens that that's the solstice. Here you have Kesselquadl, the serpent god, who lives in the heavens. He's his name actually means the feathered serpent, so that's an allusion to the idea that he's up in heaven. And he has a guy protruding from his head. This guy hasn't been eaten. He's willingly leading the body because he's an avatar. He's a manifestation in human form of this great serpent god who lives in heaven. And that's, in fact, why Cortez was able to, to uh, pull one over on Montezuma so easily, because Montezuma was actually anticipating a man coming uh, from another place to set a new age into motion to actually come and... Uh, set into motion a golden age. It's the same sort of idea that the Freemasons have of moving from out of one order into a next order. And here, this is from the book of Revelation, and it said that this tail is sweeping a third of the stars from heaven. Well, a third of anything from 100% is 33.33. And we know that 33.33 on the earth in degrees is 2,012 miles 0.9 To get really specific, that puts you right in the ballpark of this same date. We got a lot of connections. Serpents, heavenly serpents, time, and space. And the dragon motif is kind of strange because it keeps talking about this red dragon, a big red one. Um, It's rose-colored, of course, there's a, a, a lot of information in um, that just suggesting Mars, but the actual word dragon, from Greek, drachian, means to look or watch. And these graves have actually called themselves watchers. At least those channeling them say they have. And so Enoch has a lot to say about the watchers. In fact, he says that it was them that actually caused the flood to have to happen. And he says that they taught men secret things, and that's why they were uh, uh, that's why they were judged on the earth with the flood. But he also connects the name Watcher with an angel. Now here is where the whole UFO phenomenon comes in, and the whole idea of what might be taking place with the manifestations in heaven. Enoch actually defines two different sets. He talks about spirits that were born on the earth. And there's there's some variations in demonology of where demons come from. One is the idea that they were created as a kind of a lower form of a spirit sort of evil on the earth. They don't have bodies. The other, other side of the argument is that they were actually the spirits that indwelt these giants that were created by the watchers themselves. And when their bodies were destroyed in the flood, they had no more bodies left, and they had to just fend for themselves. They can uh, manifest in objects and other beings, but they don't have any bodies of their own. And the watchers are a different and distinct group. They're the spirits of heaven who were promiscuous with women. They assume many forms. They lead men astray so that they sacrifice to demons as gods until the time of the great judgment, the time of their consummation of sin. There's going to be an end point to what they're doing. Ephesians in the New Testament actually explains more into this too. Paul's talking about the Christians walk in life and he says before before you were saved, you walked according to the course of this world the prince of the powers of the air the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience Ephesians 6 he again gets into this idea that there are spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, and the Greek atmospheros they live up in the air these beings. And according to what Enoch is saying, if they were demons, we wouldn't see them. So the only alternative then, of course, from the paradigm of Enoch, is that they're watchers and they're taking on whatever form they want. But they're not going to be able to do this forever. Apparently, they're going to... The heavens actually divide time. If you go to any Masonic uh, uh, building, where rituals are held, where you go to meet, if you are a part of the, the whole group of, of the fraternities, you'll find that they've been dedicated to two Johns, always the two Johns, one's the ones that bracket the, uh, the the Gospel, John the Baptist, and then John the Revelator. He's symbolized by a double-headed eagle, always surmounted by the number 33, and inscribed in the floors of a, a Masonic hall will always be these two posts, which symbolize the two Johns, and the sun in the center of it. Which is hearkening back to that symbol of what happens when the sign of the end of the age happens, that coronary that division of the procession. Every Freemasonic Free Lodge has one of these. And they're usually perched on top, uh, sculptures, and uh, this is from uh, uh, Morals and Dogma, the book that's given to most Initiate Freemasons. This is a Rosicrucian symbol. We've incorporated all these things too. But it's trying to say that there's a future point that's significant. Here's all the points connected. 33 and a third, order out of chaos. In every one of the cases where you go back 6,480 years, there was some sort of destructive epic that came onto the Earth. You can read it historically. You can read it in Timaeus by like Plato. You can read it in geology. It follows a pattern. You have the double-headed eagle here, actually the phoenix being reborn from the ashes of, of the previous destruction because it's, it's kind of a paradox. It's both created and destroyed at the same time. It looks back to the past and forward to the future. Well, if you're navigating, it is also important to realize where you are on the planet. And with respect to 33 and a third, there's something very interesting about that. Because 33 latitude and 33 longitude, both above and below the equator, are only touching one place on this planet, on actual terra firma. And I looked into this with a little bit more scrutiny because our modern longitudinal line based on the Greenwich Meridian was only installed in 1884 during the Global uh, Meridian Conference. Um, Alan Chester Arthur was a president at that time. People from all over the world came to New York and uh, got together to figure out where they are going to put the Prime Meridian. This is a Paris Meridian, and it was established hundreds of years longer than the Greenwich Meridian. The Knights the nice Templars, the, uh, the Crusaders, they would measure the Earth by this line, not this line. Latitudinally, it's a no-brainer. Thirty-three and a third has always been right here. Unless, of course, we've been knocked out of our kilter in orbit. But pay special attention to this little place right here. Because it is a mountain that's been recorded from antiquity as a place where something extraordinary happened. The most extraterrestrial-like situation you can talk about from history. 33.33 goes perfectly through one of the three peaks of Mount Hermon. It's distinguished by three peaks in all the literature and exactly through 33.33 here by the Paris Meridian. Which is also called the Rose Line. And this is what happened here. It's the Book of Enoch. goes into detail, much more detail than the Bible does about it and because it's an extra-biblical text. Sometimes it's um, not held up with much esteem, but there are a lot of things it has to say that the fraternities of, illuminated, of the illuminated groups across uh, time have paid special attention to. And it says that when the, the sons of men had multiplied in those days, beautiful and comely daughters were born to them. Genesis 6. And the watchers, sons of heaven, saw them and desired them, and they said to one another, Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the daughters of men, and let us beget ourselves children. And they descended to the peak of Mount Hermon. And this isn't just an Enoch. There's a lot of different texts here, too. Mostly obscure as you can get, but you can find them if you need to. Another interesting thing about this general area here is a place called Baalbek, which by the Greenwich Meridian is at 36 degrees longitude. This is called the Grand. Uh, the uh, the pregnant stone for some reason by the locals there it's the largest megalith in existence on our planet it's about 70 feet wide 70 feet long about 14 feet high 10 feet wide it's estimated to weigh over a thousand tons here's another perspective of it the proud flag of lebanon and is this is a quarry that it's supposedly laying in and it's Take a look at the erosion here. This isn't just a few hundred years old, not even just a few thousand years. This has all the hallmarks of having weathered the Pleistocene uh, deluge. There was actually Pleistocene alluvials over the top of it when this was excavated. It was only part of it coming out here, and it was covered by what are called Pleistocene alluvials because they were deposited nearly 13,000 years ago there's two gentlemen on what's called here the Grand Terrace. This is called the Trilithon. These aren't as, quite as large as the monolith that's laying in the, uh, in the quarry, but they're pretty close, and they're estimated to weigh around 900 tons each. This is about 30, 40 feet up. and These are the structures that are intact in the area closest to 33 north, 33 east longitude. Here's another perspective
0: of a man standing next to the site. So, as David Flynn points out, in the old occult grimoires and the occult alignment of meridians and the old geometry of the navigators, going back centuries, he used the rose line. And from that calculation, we get the 33rd degree in the parallels and longitude latitude across the face of the earth. And so, in order to understand this biblically, you have to look at Jesus' trip to Caesarea Philippi. And this was the cave of Pan. It was called Panium. It was one of the ancient sites of pagan worship and sacrifice, and all kinds of kind of obscene acts were committed there. And there was a a massive cave and uh, some kind of, water flow. And so this was all in the, in the area at the foot of Mount Hermon. And so Mount Hermon is the location of the, of the watchers where the fallen angels came down to earth and began to intrude on and oppress and, and, and uh, manipulate in the, the affairs of mankind. And so the fallout of that would be uh, the giants in the form of Goliath and so on. So this panium at the foot of Mount Hermon was a place of of rituals practiced by the mystery religion at the time. And ultimately it was going to be renamed in the honor of Caesar, who was really the, the new uh, emperor of Rome, the Pontifex Maximus, right? So you can see this change in history and you can see the parallels that are carrying on here because Jesus would co would go to Caesarea Philippi you go to the top of the mountain and there he would, you know, be transfigured and the the glory of his uh, of his divinity. So we have to recognize that this warfare is playing out. That uh, that it's Yeshua, that it's Jesus Christ, who is the one who is standing in the gap, who is combating and overthrowing this the power of the of the Lucifer and the Luciferian doctrine as it was descending on Mount Hermon. So we just want to continue on here with our discussion here a little bit further. We can see that we're showing you now the imagery of these global interconnections. So this is the, the true meaning of globalism before our, our most recent generations, that we, you know, being young people, we've just joined the scene. We've just kind of come to the, to the party and to the revelation of this knowledge of what our ancestors and what Freemasonic architects and those who were capable back then of, of wielding the science and the sorcery of traveling the high seas. So we have to get into the law of the seas and the, the law of the land, which are different conceptions. So that we, you know, we live on the land and we have you know, laws of the land, but if you go out into the water a little ways, it becomes international waters and it becomes a different kind of legal system where the laws of the land don't really apply anymore, even though maybe it's just off the coast. So we're getting into the law of the you know the the law of the seas, and this this is where the United Nations gets involved with their the law of the sea treaties stuff, where they're they're really interested in this area of the law. Not really too interested in governing the law of the land, even though they try with their peacekeeper troops and so on, and their and their machinations and intrigue, where they are constantly manipulating in the affairs as a globalist entity. Right, right there in New York City on this alignment. Right on this alignment from Stonehenge through to Boston and New York and Philadelphia and so on. So, you know, as we're starting to this is being revealed to us, we're starting to realize this meaning of interconnectivity of globalism and the symbolism of the United Nations and then, of course, the Law of the Sea Treaty, international law, brings us back to the, the Law of the Seas and it brings us back to this idea of Admiralty Law, which is and at its basis, the process of establishing military government, and it's different than a civilian law, it's martial law, it's military law, military government, when you get into admiralty law. So this is why this is so important that we understood this in the past, we understand these concepts, and of course Stonehenge and the Druids and Londinium, the secret city of London, and that, and that, that connection as it comes over on that parallel line, that great circle line, connecting us to them. And of course, if you follow these great circle lines, even though it's very interesting now that we're up to date in this contemporary establishment of these ley lines of power, we are going to have to look back at the ley lines as they were built centuries before Rome and built by the Phoenicians and by Babylon and by Egypt and how they were also connected along these ley lines and how later Alexander the Great understood the, the power of these, these ley lines and they had understood the, the curvature of the earth and the geometry of the earth and that there was great circle lines that they were able to roughly calculate that connect all around the world and so we have to go back in time to the antediluvian period of the flood, the period of Noah toward the, this world civilization and find that these megaliths and these stone hinges, these, these large-scale sites like the Trilithon and everything, uh, in Babylon, of course, Babylon is a major, majorly important city, and the occult framework is on these ley lines. So we're going forward with the knowledge that their ancient civilizations are connected along these lines of interconnected civil and spiritual power, and this is what the occult knowledge is built on. So... They extend from the past, and they extend along the lines that the Roman Empire, of course, was built to take over from the the Greek Empire, which was built to take over from the Babylonian Empire, and so on. And so now we have this establishment of the European Union again, and we have the same forces with the same secret knowledge in control again. So we have to tie in this connection with Rome. And the Pontifex Maximus and the power that resides there at that throne, the seat of that power, the seat of the Red Dragon, the seat that you, where the the Antichrist is given a great, great mouth and a great power to speak and govern the kings of the earth, and that the that the Whore of Babylon sits on a city of seven hills. So that brings us back to Rome, and when we tie in this connected with Londinium, this connection with Londinium as the ancient outpost, the, the very farthest extension of Roman power and we see now that the city of London has become the imperial chamber of commerce for the uh, entire world and that the Bank of England and so on becomes the, 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 the crediting authority by which we owe so many trillions of dollars with this compounding debt, and fractional reserve, you know, banking scheme that we found ourselves locked in to a a national credit card where the congress has to raise the credit limit you know borrow some more money to try to you know carrying on here as as we're like a zombie nation totally riddled with debt and totally dead to the possibility of getting any gold and silver back and you know can you imagine if we had gold and silver as currency in circulation how much you know billions and billions and billions of dollars we'd be trading amongst ourselves we don't have any of that Inherent value of silver, billions of dollars of silver and gold being traded between us. Now we just have paper money and you can just Xerox it and, and half the time people will just accept it because it looks like, you know right? what makes it real? Just the paper, the, the, the actual printer that uh, printed it out, that makes it legitimate because the Federal Reserve was the one who started the process of making us borrow this this cash and have it, having to pay it back at, at, a, at a rate. So we have a vague, we have a vigorish, we have to pay to the international system now. So this is what we're getting at, guys. We're trying to unveil the cloak of secrecy that's being it dropped over the eyes. And we're try- also trying to bring in the knowledge of this Luciferian power structure. We're going to get into the obsession with 33, and we remind you that 100 percent of a thing can remain because it gets into this, this idea of Pythagoras with incommensurability, with, uh, in, you know, impossible numbers, it, endless, in, infinite numbers that keep on breaking down into smaller and smaller integers forever, and it blows the the, the hypothesis away that everything is a perfectly ordered and balanced universe. So you can see that, that numbers have to rebalance themselves the way that lightning has to rebalance itself in the atmosphere when there's too much charge, and everything is not perfectly balanced, but there has to be a resettling of things the same thing, or, or it's the same with you know large economic markets, and it's the same thing with with vast sums of numbers and the way they break down. And so Pythagoras was a genius, and, and the Pythagorean Brotherhood was a, was you know some of those people who are going to bring this obsession with divine numbers, the divinity of numbers, the sacredness of the geometry, sacred geometry. That's the religion. That's again you know, sacred geometry. So the sacred word isn't just to be pretty, it's 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 to to explicate to us the divine origin of knowledge, you know. As Prometheus brings the fire to man, so the revelation of geometry and numbers comes to us from Hermes Trismegistus. And of course, we're getting into deep occult religion, right? Black magic and things that you got, you know, you guys as listeners probably have no idea about as far as Hermes Trismegistus and the, the revelation to mankind of the you know, sacred geometry. And these, this is the kind of stuff that they, they teach in these occult secret societies. Maybe if you go into Scientology and you chase after L. Hubbard, L. Ron Hubbard and all his clothes and you look into those kind of themes, and if you going to join the Temple of Set or the Church of Satan, these are the kind of concepts and the background histories you're going to learn about that informed the past. So, you know, when you go into Hermes, you're going to go into the idea of the god of communication, the god who traveled around with his specially winged feet, right? He would zip around really fast, lightning fast. And he would go back and forth between the gods up on Olympus. So it brings back this occult theme, and this stuff is important. That's why I'm going into this, not to to bore you. But this occult theme of the gods up on the mountain, right? There was this high up mountain peak, and up there were the gods. Zeus was there. And, and, um, and Hades and, and uh, Mars, the God of War, you know, and so on, these themes up on Olympus, and they didn't always get along, they warred against each other, you know, and they came down from the heavens to the top of the mountain, and they lived up there. So this is the theme of the gods of the mountain, this is the theme you're going to see uh, explicated again and again, so it brings us back to this age-old thesis of the Tower of Babel, how Nimrod built the tower going high up into the heavens, so that he could reach back to where they had come from, because they, of course mankind fell from the garden, fell down to earth into the wilderness, and get, we were down into the, the physical plane, and lost our metaphysical status in the heavens and the specially prepared garden of God. Right, so we, we fell out of there, and we could not return. So Nimrod is going to build this tower back up high into the heavens, and later themes, uh, you know, like this are gonna we're gonna see in in um, with Babylon who had his. Uh, ancient gardens there in Baghdad and in the center of the empire of Babylonia there was a great ziggurat and fortresses there of course the, the pyramids were throwback to this process of man trying to uh, to achieve a resurgence of his past, a, re- a return to his godly abode so the the pharaohs would store all their stuff down in this great big tomb and it was supposed to be a vehicle to take them into the afterlife, right? With all their, their 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 servants and all their stuff, would be comported to the to the afterlife because they were going to return again from where they had fallen. And so this is the occult system of religious sorcery that we see. You know, we see it again in the Bible when they tried to consult instead of going to the prophet of God, they tried to consult the witch of Endor and tried to uh, tried to get God to answer them the way they wanted to hear. You know, they tried to consult sorcery, and, and so this is the kind of process of worshipping the stars, so these horoscopes and constellations, and looking into this, the tea leaves, looking into the stars, looking into the crystal ball, trying to divine the fortune of the, you know, your, your horoscope, these, these kind of concepts have gone back thousands and thousands of years into the occult dynamic of druidic and pagan, religio-cultic shamanism and and priestcraft, right? So that's what we see being assembled there in Rome under the, pape, the Pope. The They see, like, to assemble all the different witch doctors from Africa and, you know, priests from, uh, from different tribes around the world and bring them all together and make them all universal. We all have to hug a big hug. We're all together in the same religious system where the Pope and uh, Muslim clerics and all their religious orders come together and, and just high-five because we're all together in the same thing. It's the same thing that Julius Caesar did when he tried to pull together his pantheon of all the gods so everyone was free to worship any god of their choosing under Pax Romana, under under Roman authority and universalism. So this is the same themes again, guys. We're going to edify you and illuminate this information and bring it forward. And So we're showing you this information, this occult doctrine, this hidden agenda, this unseen system of... Empire building, okay, an occult throne, an unseen empire that's being built up, That ties why that's why Washington D.C. is so sick. That's why when you look at it, you can't understand how it became the District of Columbia and how the the courts became so perverted. And you know, the you know I always talk about Pontifex Maximus, but now you have the um, the Commander in Chief, right? The great big authoritarian, you know, the, the the military dictator who. Everyone has to bend the knee and bow, and whenever he writes on the paper, he scrawls on the paper, and everyone has to the 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 big military police state, the, the military pharmaceutical government complex has to come together, and uh, and everyone has to to bow and kiss the ring thereof. So of course, these are all Roman Catholic. You know, Joe, Joe 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 Biden is a famous Roman Catholic. He's invited two two popes now to the uh, maybe three. I don't know. But yeah, he's, he's been a wool servant of Rome this whole time. So we need to understand what Rome is. It's more than just a cute Christmas card or an Easter egg basket. Those are all just deeply ingrained traditions of carnival, deeply ingrained practices of pagan tribes from long ago. So you have, you know the mistletoe and all the, you know all these 3,000 year old practices that are just mingled into Christian religion. They're not in the Bible. Santa Claus and reindeer. All, the, all these super added traditions, which is what the whole thing is, are not biblical. They're not Christian. But they're from the accumulation of all the paganism of the world into one system. And, and of course we have to, because it's universal, we have to bow the knee and we have to join with it too. But of course as Protestants the meaning of our name is that we protest and that we have our, we're, we're protestant, we're protestari, that's what it means. Protestari is the original name, and it means that we're protestant, we, we, we have our, our Bible, our paper pope, and, we, and we, that's our authority. So our Bible, you know, our scriptures are our authority and not the traditions of men. So that's why we're Protestant and we resist. We won't join with the ecumenicalism, we won't join with Rome. So even if they burn us or kill us traditionally, we, we understand that in order to stay loyal to Jesus Christ, in order to stay pure as virgins and 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 brides of Christ, right? Which is what the church is supposed to be, which I think women have a deeper understanding of what that concept is than men do. But as men we have to be subordinated to the idea that we're brides of Christ, we're, we're to be only chaste and only um, observing after the, the commandments of our bridegroom, of Christ, right? So we only are interested in the things that he... So we're only interested in the things that he has to say and the words that he spoke in the Bible. And we're not interested in all the other things of the vicar of Christ or the alter Christus, that's what they call it in the Roman Catholic system. It's when the priest becomes the alter Christus, an alternate Christ. This is what is meant by antichrist. Right, so we, we don't listen to these the system of the Antichrist where we call men father. Jesus Christ spoke specifically about don't call any man on earth father. So there's no father mulligan or father Smith or Holy Father in the Vatican. Those are all just fallen terms going to say our father is in heaven. So we're in a spiritual war. And that's what this work is all about. That's what we're bringing forth here in this, this episode, and we're showing you a deep and clear enunciation of the, the system of world power, of new world order, of the system of the Antichrist, which is just completely global world power. All, all the, the ten kings of the earth, all the ten regional zones of, of, of sovereignty around the world will all be brought under submission to this system in Rome. Okay, so that's what we're getting at. And um, we have more to go. Let's keep it up.